The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to this special episode of the MJ Cast. It's our second annual Vindication Day anniversary episode. On this day in 2005, Michael Jackson walked free from a courthouse in Santa Maria after jurors acquitted him of 14 charges of child molestation, conspiracy, and supplying alcohol to a minor. Last year, we were joined by guest co-host Charles Thompson, who helped us interview the most famous member of Michael Jackson's defense team, lead attorney Tom Mesereau. That was episode 10. Today, on episode 33, we are once again joined by Charles, and this time around, we will be interviewing one of the more overlooked figures of the trial, but one whose work Mesereau says was crucial to the defence team's success. Scott Ross has been Tom Mesereau's go-to private investigator ever since they met in 2002 on the Robert Blake murder case. Mesereau describes him as the best investigator he has ever worked with. Scott has worked on notorious cases, including the McMartin Preschool Molestation Trial and the Scott Peterson murder case, as well as collaborating with former Michael Jackson attorney Mark Garagos on cases such as Chris Brown's Assault on Rihanna and the Winona Ryder shoplifting trial. In 2011, he worked for the defense in Conrad Murray's trial, where Murray was convicted of Michael Jackson's homicide. It's just past 3pm right now in LA, and when I just asked Scott how long he'd stay for, he said he'd stay until 3am. We won't hold you that long, Scott, but thanks for being here with us today. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for calling. It's a real honour to have you on the MJ cast. We... As a podcast, we we focus on a lot of people that knew Michael Jackson that worked with him. But we once a year we do um, these anniversary episodes for the trial um, that he was involved in in the mid two thousands. It was such a seminal trial, and you were a part of such an important team uh, during that time in his life. Yeah, you know it was uh, it, it was interesting, and it was interesting to be part of it. In the same respect, it was certainly a sad set of circumstances. Watching somebody being falsely accused, unfortunately, it happens. Uh, it happens more frequently than not. <clears throat> but being able to work with Tom again was definitely uh, was definitely fun. I didn't really have a lot of interaction with Michael. He's a very private person. You know, it's sort of curious, but I, I had virtually no conversations. Interestingly, the one thing that was that I always got a kick out of is Michael would walk in every morning, with the exception of the pajama day incident. Um, he walked in every morning and he'd say, good morning, Scott, thank you for being here, which was not something that I was really accustomed to people doing. Typically, people give me a check and that's the end of it. So, Yeah, a lot of people describe him as an incredibly polite individual when working with him. He was, both he and his mother, both. His mother, you know, would always smile, say good morning. It was sort of funny, the uh, bailiff, I forget her last name, her name was Leslie, but the bailiff in the courtroom had a... Uh, big thing of, of cough drops 
for Catherine set aside over there a big a big bowl and periodically she would carry the bowl over to Catherine and and you know she'd take a couple out of them and you know, like candies really more so than cough drops but it was nice to see everybody sort of getting along because there was a lot of tension in the room uh, as you can imagine but everybody tried to get along and everybody was you know Tom and Susan are always professional and have always been professional. So, you know, again, they're just, they're nice people to work with and work for and be around and, you know, again, in a very bad scenario. And the worst part about the entire case that I I actually always felt bad for Michael is, you know, number one, you're being accused of a crime you certainly didn't commit. And number two, the entire world is watching. It's not like, you know, some schmuck that, that is falsely accused and I get it, but you know, the issue being is that that Michael's entire life is being is being broadcast and unfairly mm, absolutely. Uh, to the world. Well, what we do on our shows, especially when we're speaking to guests of uh, particular sort of professions, is we like to go right back to their early life and set the scene for our for our audience. So you first became a private investigator in 1979. What made you want to become a private investigator and how did you get into the profession? Well, if you want the short version of the story, I became a private investigator instead of a police officer because I couldn't get pregnant. Um, (laughs) I was, I I fell into sort of an unusual, I mean, since I was a kid, when I was a kid, I actually always thought it would be fun to ride a motorcycle and get paid for it. So I really wanted to be a patrol cop. I was always in trouble of one sort or another, but it was always mischief. I was never, I never committed crimes. I didn't, you know, but, uh, you know, I graduated high school, uh, most likely to go to prison. The um, the LAPD at the time that I graduated, I graduated high school in 74. I'm 60 years old now. Graduated high school in 1974. And the Vietnam War having ended, the LAPD and the LA County sheriffs were only hiring Vietnam vets, which is fine. And I was too young to have gone to Vietnam having, having ended in 73. <clears throat> so um, when I tried again... In the mid-late 70s, there was a very large women's movement. And the LAPD was really only hiring women at that time. Mm. I met with a uh, guy who passed away um, who was dying of leukemia, who was a former U.S. Marshal. He wanted to ensure that they had somebody that they could work with that would take over for him. So when I met him in February of 79, he hired me. I had been going to college. I'd been studying police science anyway at that point. So I had I had a basic knowledge tra- and training. But um, his name was uh, Chick Canzaneri, Angelo Canzaneri. But when I met up with, with uh, Canzaneri, again, he knew he was dying. He, there was nothing he could do about it. So that's that was sort of the start of it all, if you know, for what it's worth. So I was never a police officer. Um, that's what I wanted to be when I was a kid, but that didn't happen. But it's fine. I'm happy the way things worked out. Uh, Scott, what does your work, your role as a lead investigator on a criminal case generally entail for those listening that aren't sure exactly what you do as a job? Well, I mean, as you can imagine, it sort of varies from case to case. But the the easiest way to sort of sum that up is the thing that I do most is police the police. I go through the discovery, make sure that they followed the rules, make sure that they did everything they were supposed to do. Can I jump right into something about Michael's case? Do you mind? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. go for it. There was a huge, huge, huge issue that everybody completely ignored, which is sort of mind-boggling to me. And it was probably the first thing that I picked up on. 
And they, they talked about all of these different people. You had Dieter Konitzer and I forget the other, whatever his name was, the, the other German guy. And the prosecution sort of started this case when Garagos was involved, and they started to name these unindicted co-conspirators. The problem was when the discovery was turned over, the first thing that I noticed was everybody talked about Chris Tucker flying the family to Florida. And yet, during the trial, the prosecution put up this entire list of this person calling that person. You know, it was David Legrand called Conitzer. Mark Garagos called Legrand. Legrand called Steve, I forget the attorney. Sorry, I'm going to forget a few names. I can't believe it's been 11 years. But, you know, this person called that person, blah, 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 blah. So the first thing I did is I went back and I got the phone records and I said to the attorneys, I said to Tom and Susan, and I said, uh, who contacted Chris Tucker? How did the family get on the plane with Chris Tucker? Because when you listen to when you listen to Zonin and you listen to um, Snedden and they talk about the case, they just sort of sloughed over it. And that was sort of the disturbing part is they they sort of they said and then he got on a plane with Chris Tucker and he went to Florida. But nobody ever bothered to contact Chris Tucker. Nobody ever bothered to look at the phone records. And when I went through the phone records, one of the first things that I noticed is that there were no calls from any of these, quote, co-conspirators to Chris Tucker. So how did Chris Tucker get involved? So <clears throat> bottom line, fortunately for me, unfortunately for the uh, Santa Barbara County sheriffs, the, the major players, most of the people were in Los Angeles. So when everybody went out and hired an attorney, they didn't know the lawyers, but I did. <clears throat> There's an attorney named John Sweeney, who I happen to be very good friends with. Chris Tucker contacted Sweeney. So when I needed to talk to Chris Tucker, I just called John Sweeney and I made the appointment. No big deal. Um, went over to John's house. Chris Tucker came over to John's house. And that's where he revealed the truth of the matter is that the family said, we can't get out of our house. Because again, as you know, the broadcast and all these allegations were after the airing of the special. Mm -hmm. So the families of uh, uh, Bashir's special. So the family says, we can't get out of our house. Can we come over to your house? Well, at that point, there are two phone calls that I found on the family phone records to Chris Tucker. No phone calls from Chris Tucker to the family. He didn't call them back. They called him. So short version <clears throat> is... The family called Chris, said, can we come over to your house? Chris said, I'm going to Florida. And he said, if you want to join me on the plane, you're welcome to. And at that time, he said, I'm going to Orlando. So unbeknownst to Chris Tucker, the family then says, well, Michael's in Miami. So Chris called his brother. I think his name was Doug. And he called Doug and he said, I'm going to reroute the plane. We're going to go to Miami. Because again, Chris openly admitted that he had met Michael through the Arvizo family. And so bottom line is Chris said uh, to the family, he said, yeah, you know, I don't care. He chartered the plane. He'd already paid for it. There's not a lot of difference between Orlando and Miami. So that's why the plane flew to Miami. But again, nobody looked at that and the prosecution glossed over it like it was not an issue, like it was not part of the factor. They, they said Michael brought him down there and none of that's true. When they got to Miami, Michael had no idea the family was coming down. That's a pretty big thing, and you and you uncovered that, and then laid that out. So that's sort of what you do. Yeah, I look for again. It's it's theoretically it's policing the police. It's to make sure that they have all of their information, that they can justify their information, that they have accurate information. And again, you know, you can't just sort of blow off 
a specific small fact like it's not important, like it doesn't exist. And and if you go back and look at even the opening statements of Snedden, you can see clearly that he did that. You know, one of the things that, that the public is probably not aware of, in 1999, there was another individual who, I think it was 99, who had made a claim about Michael in Toronto. And um, Sergeant... Uh, Robel, Steve Robel, and I forget who else, went to Toronto and spent four days with this kid until they came back and determined that the kid was not telling the truth, huh. that the kid was a liar. But, but the point to that story is they had to turn all of this stuff over, that ever since the Geordie Chandler melee, you know, it, it's like Snedden never let go. He was always just looking for somebody to make the next complaint, to make the next statement, to make the next comment. So when this show aired, it's not like anybody went to the San Diego, or I'm sorry, the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's and, and filed a formal complaint. Snedden went in search of these people looking for somebody to complain. So back to so back to those sorry. earlier days. No, that's fine. Do you Did you eventually think that, like, was it what you wanted it to be or was it did your job end up being what you thought it would be when you first started doing it? I mean, again, each case is completely different and I don't expect anything from any of the cases. I mean, they all have a different set of facts. And again, I, I read through the discovery and my, my thought process as I'm reading, as I'm reading a page, no matter what it is, I don't, I don't care if I'm reading a menu, if I, whatever I'm reading, as I'm reading something, my brain functions in a manner that says, I can prove that, I can disprove that, that I can't do anything with. So if you say, I'm in Australia, I had eggs for breakfast, I graduated college. I'm going to think, okay, I can prove you're in Australia. I can't prove you had eggs for breakfast unless I want to cut you open. And <laughs> I, can, I can probably prove that you did or didn't go to college. So again, when people tell me anything, no matter what it is, even if, if again, if a waitress comes and tells me today's specials, I, I can either prove or disprove that they exist. I can, you know, that's how I hear things. And so when I, when I sit there and read through the discovery, that's what I'm looking for. When somebody tells a story, I look for items that can be either proven, disproven, or move on. So, so I don't have I don't have any expectations from a case. That's just the bottom line. I, I, I the only thing I expect from any particular case, and that's why I have a very, very, very select group of attorneys that I'm willing to work with, is I just expect um, appropriate communication with my attorneys. You know, I, I I don't need typically in a case when I need information, I have to write a subpoena. I have a relationship with all of the attorneys and Tom and Susan included. I don't need them to write a subpoena. I can write my own subpoenas, but I need them to understand what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And <clears throat> the people through the years, the attorneys that that are very bad at communicating, which Tom and Susan, of course, were not, but people who are bad at communicating, I just had no use for. So I sort of cut those people out of my out of my career. Um, I was fortunate enough to do that. I don't have to take every case that walks through the door. You know, and again, I, I get everybody's upset with Conrad Murray, and you had mentioned in there that that I worked with the attorneys representing uh, Dr. Murray. When all is said and done, it was a bad trial, and I'm sure you are probably not aware of this. And unfortunately, Dr. Klein, who I knew very well, Arnie Klein, you know, his medical records came in, but if you followed that case, Dr. Klein started Michael on propofol in 1991. Did you know that? 
I actually did know that because I've been recently watching deposition videos from the wrongful death suit against AEG. Oh. So um, oh. I, I did know that fact, but only because I've been watching those those videos. But you didn't know it at the time of the trial. That's right. I did not. Okay. And and to think that, that Dr. Murray wanted him dead or did something that was completely insane, I, I get the irresponsibility, but I don't still don't think it rose to the level of criminality. And Tom and I, by the way, co- completely disagree. <laughs> we were on opposite ends of the spectrum there. But – uh, but the judge allowed uh, Arnie's medical record, doctor, excuse me, Dr. Klein's medical records, who unfortunately has since passed, very, very nice man. But he allowed Dr. Klein's medical records to come in. And how do you cross-examine medical records? Mm. You know, uh, Judge Pastor, who, again, very, very nice person. I've known him for years. I think the world of Judge Pastor had no business allowing that in if they weren't going to allow you to cross-examine Dr. Klein. And the bottom line is, I assume that that Dr. Murray's intention was at some point to get Michael off of certain drugs, but you can't just walk in and say, yep, I'm in charge and you're done. You, you can't cut people off like that. That's exactly right. These deposition videos that I've been watching lately, especially with other doctors, like Dr. Stuart Finkelstein and, uh, you know, various doctors that, that worked for Michael Jackson over the years, pretty much all say the same thing. They say that they came in wanting to help Michael and were really worried that they were going to be the Dr. Nick, that they were going to be the fall guy for the doctor that came before. Yeah. And unfortunately, Murray, even though, like, let's be honest, like Murray did a lot of things wrong um, in that critical moment. No doubt. But uh, it's not his fault that what the doctors did before him as well. So, Exactly. And unfortunately, I completely agree with the negligence. I have no doubt about that. What he did was completely negligent. I just don't think it warranted. I don't think it rose to the level of criminal negligence. And like I said, I love Tom, but that's where we part ways. And that's fine. We, we agree to disagree. But in the same respect, uh, I, I, I took the case on because I was contacted by an attorney that I know well, uh, Nara Gorgian, and um, I just thought he was getting railroaded. And I thought that, you know, somebody had to have a scapegoat. I, I don't know what's going to happen with this doctor who is writing these prescriptions for Prince, but I think the same thing is about to happen. And I hope not. You know, you try and work with your clients, you try and work with your patients, you try and help them. But it, it isn't a process that, that ever happens overnight. Could you give us um, a run through of some of the biggest cases that you were in before the Robert Blake case? Well, you probably would not be familiar with it, but um, the bigger case was uh, probably the bigger cases were um, the McMartin and LAPD Rampart case. Um, <clears throat> there were police officers. Uh, it actually cost the city of Los Angeles $120 million out of their pocket. I believe 210 people were were actually freed from custody uh, as a result of it. There were, there were a group of uh, police officers, LAPD officers, that were allegedly planting guns on gang members and falsifying reports and things of that nature. And um, uh, I worked... Again, I was I was on that case um, with another investigator, uh, Larry Delosh, representing these four officers. Ultimately, that were charged. Two other officers took a deal and pled out. the The most famous officer was a, a guy named Ray Perez, um, and in fact, three of the four officers were convicted. But 
I stuck around after the fact. And when I heard what the jurors had to say, I realized that they didn't understand the jury instructions. Um, and subsequently, I went out and I interviewed the jurors one by one. And the judge ultimately, based on the declarations, I was able to retrieve. The judge reversed the verdict. And uh, Gil Garcetti, who was the district attorney in Los Angeles at the time, had lost the election. And Steve Cooley had been elected, and Cooley then opted to not um, retry the police officers. They they would have lost at that point. So um, that one, and you know, I did. I, I still have a working relationship with the Stallone family. Um, so I, I actually talked to Sly last weekend. And I've done a lot of work for them, mostly, I mean, civil. You know, the, the Stallone brothers don't get arrested, so that was all civil stuff. Um, and then I worked, I did some work on the McMartin case back in, in what was it, the early 80s with my, um, my original partner, a guy named Ted Gunderson, who was a uh, former uh, FBI agent. He was what's called the SAC, special agent in charge of the Los Angeles office. And he was really the way that I got sort of into the bigger cases because he was so high up on the food chain that he knew all of the major players. He knew all the big attorneys like Harlan Braun, um, Robert Shapiro, uh, Johnny Cochran, Carl Douglas. Those are the attorneys that I started working for many, many years ago. I, again, I was very fortunate to have been part of part of their cases. But, you know, when they're done, I, I try and move on, tell you the truth. <laughs> The McMartin case was a, a big um, child molestation case, wasn't it? Well, once again, it was a child molestation case that was brought against the 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 Bucky family, um, the McMartin and the Bucky family. And again, the attorney at the time was Danny Davis, and and they set a precedent with an eighteen month, a year and a half long preliminary hearing. Well, in order to avoid that with Michael's case, they just took it to a grand jury so that they wouldn't have to go through this long, drawn-out prelim. <clears throat> um, because I don't think that any competent judge would have would have held Michael to answer in a preliminary hearing. But in a grand jury scenario in the United States, you you put you put this information, and it's only one-sided information, even though it's not supposed to be, in front of twenty-three people who have no legal training whatsoever. And they decide whether or not they feel there's enough to uh, take somebody to trial. And that's exactly what the prosecution did in this case. And um, so McMartin was, yeah, it was a child molest case, again, that actually never really happened. You know, the, the sheriff's department influenced these kids. The city of Manhattan Beach, was, a, which is a very, very small police department, um, brought in the sheriff's department, and it, it ultimately it exposed a bunch of, of jailhouse snitches. These people that the sheriffs were actually handing police reports to, and these people would then come in and testify against the defendant. And their their thought process is, well, if the guy didn't confess to a crime, how would these other inmates not connected to, to the crime have the information? And one day, when an honest deputy went in and tossed a cell. He found police reports to uh, one of the McMartin witnesses, um, statements that the McMartin witness had made. And that's how the whole thing became exposed. And that's why it also cost the city of L.A. four trials. There were four subsequent trials. They could never get a conviction. And each defendant started to drop off one by one by one by one, but it still ruined their lives. Look what this, look what this case did to Michael's life. 
And, and for what, you know, he left the country, he stopped working, he left his home that he clearly loved. You know, I, I got to, I got to hang out at the house, have dinner at the house and see every part of the house. And, you know, let me tell you, that was just spectacular. It was something, something to behold. You know, another fact, by the way, I don't think it came in at the time of the trial. You know, when they said that Michael was, they were sleeping in Michael's room. You remember all that nonsense? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Did you know that Michael's bedroom, and I'm talking about the house, forget the house. Michael's bedroom was 3,000 square feet. It was like a two-story house all on its own pretty much. Yeah. His bedroom, just the bedroom, just the bedroom. Forget the living room, forget the library, forget the God knows what else. Was three thousand square feet, but that never came out. I mean, it, it was it was huge. So my house is three thousand square feet. So if somebody spent the night in my house, doesn't mean they were in my room. So they could they you know, could be two thousand feet away. It, well, and you know, it was really really another thing that was annoying that nobody seemed to pay any attention to. And I was I apologize, but I was screaming at Bob Sanger. Come on, say something. You know, they talked about when Starr was testifying, they talked about how Starr had gone up the stairs and he saw all this activity happening. And then they turned around and they said that that Michael had alarm systems set up. So if somebody went up the stairs, it would trigger the alarm system so that he would stop whatever it was that he was doing. And that's why he wasn't getting caught. Well, wait a minute. Starr's the size of a Buick. How did he get past the system? I mean, the kid was what, like 5'3", <laughs> 280 pounds? Mm. Yeah. So how it's not like he could turn sideways and sneak past it. So how did Star manage to get up the stairs if they say it had an alarm, the alarm was intact, the alarm was functioning? Again, they made statements that if you really paid attention to were completely idiotic. Well, that's what I was focusing on. You know, and those are the kinds of things that I would bring to everybody's attention. How is this possible? Again, like I said, when I hear a story, so I'm reading the discovery, and when I see this story, I, I'm pretty sure I called, I don't remember who I called, I'm sorry. I, I called somebody and I said, wait a minute, pay attention to this. And I remember Sanger was doing that part of the thing and I was a little disappointed because I think it should have been exploited significantly more than it was. I know it was brought out, but it, again, just the the idiocy thinking that you have an alarm, the alarm is there because you're a, you're a child molester, you put the alarm in play, yet this guy with a license plate strapped to his ass can get past it. I just don't get it. <laughs> You know what I mean? And this is what I'm saying. When I listen to something or read something, I can prove it. I can disprove it. And this was one of those things that we could completely disprove. And that's why this family was incredible. It wasn't just the the ridiculous things that Janet Arvisa was saying about being hustled away in an air balloon or whatever other nonsense she was coming up with. But when all is said and done, it was... uh, um, Again, it was sad. It was sad to sit there and watch what happened to Michael. I left before the verdict came in. I left before closing arguments. I really didn't think that it was my place to sit there and watch this three-ring circus. This was still a person, and it really didn't matter to me whether he was Michael Jackson or not. It was it was just a person whose life was in complete upheaval. And one less person sitting there watching this idiotic dog and pony show, I, I, I just had no no reason to sit there. There was no point in it whatsoever. So, so you you actually you came to the the Jackson case through your work on the Robert Blake case. Blake, of course, was a TV actor who was accused of uh, shooting his wife to death, and you were brought in by a different attorney. But then that attorney left, and Mesereau came in, 
and that's where you met Tom Mesereau. Um, no, Tom Mesereau, not, not quite. No, no. Okay. We had. I had a. Uh, uh, I had a sexual assault case. The attorney that I was working with, and I still work with, is Harlan Braun. And I had a sexual assault case. Harlan and I had a sex assault case. We had a doctor who had been accused of inappropriately touching a patient. The DA that was handling that case, and I don't remember her name, the district attorney that was handling it, was in trial. And we do our reconnaissance. Basically, we do some you know little surveillance, reconnaissance, whatever you want to call it. So I went into the courtroom to watch and see how this woman was functioning. I found out through some friends I have in the DA's office where she was and what she was doing. And she was in a trial where a paramedic had been accused of, I guess, uh, I don't remember if it was a, some kind of an accident, but a paramedic had arrived on scene, had cut this woman's shirt open and was giving her, you know, a chest massage to bring her back to life. He did, by the way. And then after the fact, the boyfriend said that he was trying to cop a feel and they charged the uh, paramedic. So um, Tom was representing the paramedic. And I just wanted to see the DA. I wanted to see how she operated. I wanted to see, you know, the types of arguments that she made because, again, she was in a sexual assault unit and we had the same type of case coming up. And it also involved a medical professional. So it, it had enough it had enough to it that I was attracted to it. So I went in, you know, it's a small, it's a small community. I knew who Tom was, but I didn't know him. And I went up while he was uh, getting ready to select a jury. I introduced myself and asked him if he, if he would mind if I sat and watched. And he knows Harlan. He knows Harlan really well. So I said, I was working with Harlan Braun. Do you mind if I just sit here and, and watch the uh, trial or watch, you know, bits and pieces? That's the first time I met Tom. And then um, we had we had several nice conversations. Again, I, I hadn't worked with him. And then we went forward with our trial. And as a matter of fact, the doctor was acquitted of any charges as well. And Tom, Tom was also successful. The paramedic was acquitted of all charges. But um, uh, so when I, again, when I was working with Harlan Braun on Blake's case and Blake insisted on going on television, Harlan told him, if you go on TV, initially it was Diane Sawyer, but he ended up going on with Barbara Walters. He said, if you go on with Barbara Walters, he said, we're done. Harlan told uh, Robert, we're done. And so again, uh, Har uh, Robert went out and found an attorney, found Tom. And I, because again, of my, you know, having having dealt with Tom in the past, again, not working with him, but I knew him. And, he, you know, he's... He's a very, 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 very pleasant, polite, nice, just a nice person to, to talk to. So I went over and I told Tom, I said, look, here's the stuff. Here's the file. Here's all my work. If you need anything, let me know if there's anything I can do to, to help. And after a couple of weeks, he finally called and he said, yeah, I need your help. So I told Harlan that I was going to go stay with Tom, get him through the prelim, the preliminary hearing. Um, and basically, that's what I did. So. Um, and then shortly after that, that's when Tom, after Tom got fed up with Blake in the same way that Harlan did and, and fired him, told him to get another attorney. Um, that's when Tom was brought on on Jackson. And then he called me and said, you know, are you busy? You know, do you want to do Jackson with me? And I said, sure. So that's sort of how that happened. But I had met Tom before Robert Blake. It was a, it was a couple of years, several, I'd say about three years before Robert Blake. And being that Michael Jackson is Michael Jackson. How did you feel about being hired for that case initially? Well, I, I, again, honestly, it, it was another case. It really was. I know people don't 
really get that. It was just another case to me. I felt I felt as bad for him as I as I did for the doctor who was falsely accused. I felt bad for I feel bad for anybody who's wrongly accused. And trust me, I got lots and lots. Of, I just I just sat there and watched an 82 year old man that we tried to defend for child molesting get sentenced to 27 years. And he had every minute of it coming. I get it. Um, some of the people we represent, unfortunately, are guilty. But Michael wasn't. This doctor wasn't. You know, the, the Rampart guys weren't. And anytime I see anybody that that is being falsely accused, it really doesn't mean anything to me who they are. I, I didn't make any more or any less money working Michael's case than I would have with anything else. Scott, Mr. Mesereau said that you're the best PI he's ever worked with. What do you think you do differently to others? I, I honestly, I have no clue. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't say, I, I mean, I appreciate, I do understand. I totally appreciate Tom saying that. I think that's, that is the biggest compliment anybody's ever paid me. But I, I, I don't know what it is that I do differently. Unfortunately, it, the downside to this particular job, when you lose, it's not like a civil case. And, and I don't mean to demean civil cases because I know they're very important to people. But when you lose as in a civil case, you lose money. When you lose in a criminal case, you lose your freedom. And I watch people go bankrupt trying to to save their freedom. You know, they don't they don't care. They'll go out and do what they have to do to try and get uh, to try and raise the money to defend themselves. And and so I, I take each particular case, I don't work with anybody else. My wife is also a licensed investigator, by the way. And she's really the only person that I trust to help me. Um, she actually did all of the logistics. She was moving all of the witnesses um, and, and you know, coordinating rental cars and hotels. And, you know, she, she literally took care of all of that. In fact, if I can completely change the subject, one of our prouder moments and one of the first things that Tom pulled me aside he said, I don't want to screw with this judge. This judge said that we are not to have a single missing witness. He said, I don't want that chair empty for 10 minutes. And I'm proud of the fact that that my wife, almost single-handedly, besides with a little bit of a couple phone calls from me, put, how many was it, like 60-some-odd witnesses through there for us, for the defense? Never missed a single day. Never missed a single minute where the prosecution shut down three days, not in a row, but three different days. They had over 9,000 people to help coordinate them and they couldn't do it. Um, and we did. And we were bringing people in from New York, from Australia. We brought in the Barnes family from Australia. And not only that, we had to get them from wherever they happened to be up to a little town called Santa Maria. That was no easy task. Um, and especially when you're talking about getting people like Jay Leno and, and uh, uh, Chris Tucker and, you know, who else did we have to drag up through there? You know, it, it was no easy task getting all of that coordinated. And my wife basically took care of, I'd say, about 98% of that. Wow. And in fact, the one person that I really, really never got a chance to thank, you, you remember the actress Bernay Watson Johnson? I don't, sorry. That's okay. She she testified. Um, we actually were on the verge of running short one afternoon, um, and God love her. I called her and I apologized profusely in the morning, and I said, "We may need you in the afternoon. We may need to fill a hole. Is there any way that I can get you to drop everything you're doing and come up?" You would recognize her. She played she played the mother, I think, of Will Smith on on uh, Prince of Bel Air. Oh, I think okay. Yes. Yeah. 
Yep. Yeah, Verne. Um, and she did. She dropped absolutely everything, and she got in the car and drove to Santa Maria. And we ended up not calling her that day, but the next morning. And, um, you know, again, I, I never really did get a chance to thank her properly for doing that. I just thought that was that was a spectacular thing. And because of that, and because of my wife's efforts, and because of, of those types of things, and, you know, stuff that goes on behind the scenes that people just don't see, you know, we actually, we looked better than them. We really did. And, you know, Tom, and, and, you know, Susan doesn't get, let me tell you, you said something in the at the opening about not getting enough credit. Susan Yu deserves 90% of that credit she's not getting. Um, you know those notebooks and those boxes that we schlepped in every day? Yeah. Who, who do you think put those together and organized those so that Tom had every single piece of information at his fingertips? That was all Susan. Susan is second to none when it comes to organizing and, and producing. And, you know, I, I've never seen anybody that can organize. And we had... We easily had four or 500,000 documents. Um, and for her to be able to sort out, separate, produce, make those notebooks, you know, I get that Tom had to memorize them. I get that Tom had to know where everything was. But the thing of it is when Tom needed a document at his fingertips, it was Susan that put it at his fingertips. And it sort of bothers me that she hasn't gotten the credit that she is clearly, clearly, clearly entitled to um, if you're going to give somebody credit. You know, Susan was up till one o'clock every morning. Yeah, we couldn't agree more. And uh, hopefully one day uh, we'll be able to get Susan on the show as well. I hope so. And, you know, the thing too, Susan, pretty much after Tom went to sleep, because I know Michael would call every day at the end of the day. And Michael would talk to uh, Tom for a little while on the Tom's not a phone person. <laughs> you know, he's he doesn't want to sit on the phone and and. Yak. He, he likes his exercise. You know, he's a boxer. He likes to walk and he likes to exercise. And uh, he would go to sleep relatively early, about six, seven o'clock at night after he ate dinner and did his exercising. But Susan was up till one or two o'clock in the morning. But from about seven to about nine thirty, ten o'clock, Susan was on the phone with Michael every day without fail, trying to keep him calm, trying to, you know, you know, because as the prosecution goes first, you hear all these damaging things. You hear all these bad things about you. You don't get a chance to to hear our case being put on. So Michael was very, very disappointed. And it's not something he conveyed to me, but I can certainly tell when somebody's disappointed. You know, I said it once before, the thing that was most interesting about Michael too during the trial is the way he sort of separated himself from the reality of what was going on around him. Um, he would... It, he had a he had a little thing of yellow post-its in front of him and he kept making notes you know i was sitting directly behind him the entire time i didn't sit up at the bench but or at the uh, table but i was sitting directly behind him. and he would he would take out a pen every now and then he would make little notes to himself usually clients make notes and hand it to the attorney like i want you to ask this question but michael would look at the note he'd write it out look at it and then he would stick it in his pocket i had no idea what it was but he clearly had completely disassociated himself. Um, you know, somebody with that much talent, I guess, has the ability to sort of put themselves into another place. I, I don't know what he was doing. I really don't. And it was, it was none of my business, and I wasn't about to ask him. But, man, I'm still curious as to what he was putting on those notes. Do you think maybe it was things to talk to Susan about or Tom later in the, in the evening? 
It very well could have been, but that again, and again, you know, everybody's different. It's sort of not consistent with my, again, my experience through the years that somebody has an immediate thought and they want something addressed immediately. So they write down a note, you know, somebody will say they were at this location or that location, and they'll put down a note saying, you know, I was there, but I wasn't there in the afternoon. And they hand it to the attorney. So again, it's like anything else. When you're talking about something in the immediate, at the immediate time, it's not consistent that somebody would write down a note to discuss four hours later, six hours later. Um, Because again, half the time people come back and they want to talk about something. You you end up saying, oh, really? I I don't remember talking about that or I don't remember hearing that. Unless it's incredibly huge, then that's a different story. But no, I, I... to this day, I have no idea what he was doing, and unfortunately, I guess I'm never going to find out, but I would like to know. So, Delighted to have with us one of America's youngest institutions, five of our very favorite people who, in fact, are doing us the honor of letting us celebrate with them their 10th anniversary in show business. A great welcome, gang, for the Jacksons. If you remember these songs, I never can say goodbye. Don't wait for me. I never can say goodbye. Even though the pain and heartaches seem to follow me wherever I go, though I try and strike to have my feet, and they always seem to show. Then you try to say you're leaving me, and I always never say no. Tell me why. This is Janneke, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. If you're after a leading magazine on all things Michael Jackson and the Jackson family, check out Jackson Source. Jackson Source publishes Jackson Magazine annually, and it offers a full retrospect of the previous year, covering all the news, highlights, and events of the first and next generation of Jacksons in the form of articles, interviews, photos, categories, and exclusive contributions from Jackson family members. Jackson Magazine is now available and features articles about the message in Michael's music, the legacy of the Jackson 5, exclusive interviews with Tito, Jermaine, Taj, Terrell and TJ, as well as exclusive pictures of Tito, Jermaine, Jafar and Your Majesty, and loads more. 
You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Jackson Source. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Rinton Guest, the author of The Trials of Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Scott, you um you were speaking a moment ago about the credit that Susan Yu deserves but doesn't get. Um, how much credit does or doesn't Mark Garagos deserve for his work on the Jackson case? <laughs> None. <laughs> I'm sorry. None. No, that's okay. None. He, he, he Mark, deserves no, no credit. No. And in fact... I, I refuse to use names, but one of the things that was incredibly troublesome, and I know that he was involved with, when I first came in, there were a series of declarations that had been written out and signed by employees at the ranch. And when we started interviewing witnesses, you, you know, typically you want to start with friendlies. You want to start with people who you think are going to cooperate with you. When I went up to the ranch and tried to track down some of these people who had signed these declarations, all of a sudden, I found myself talking to people who didn't speak a word of English. And I'm reading English written declarations with their signature. And I had to go grab somebody who worked on the machinery at the, what would you call it, the amusement center, who spoke English and Spanish. I speak enough Spanish to order lunch. That's about it. And I had to go grab somebody to come help me. And it turns out that these people, somebody had written out a declaration and told these people to sign it. They don't know what it said. These were not written in Spanish. These were not translated for them. These were totally useless. A declaration is totally useless in a criminal matter. So, I mean, frankly, the declarations were toilet paper. And Mark was fully aware of it. And I have absolutely no idea why he would have had anything to do with it. I would have never, and God knows how much money Michael was charged to go out and do that. Um, and, and the investigator that was doing it, for the life of me, I can't imagine what he could have been thinking. You can't use a declaration in a criminal case. Again, Sixth Amendment, you have the right to face your accuser. You bring the witnesses in. What purpose would a declaration have served? And who the hell gets a declaration written in English signed by somebody who can't read or understand English? So just the fact that Garagos's uh, office was involved in that, you know, I am not a friend or fan of Brad Miller, but why would you follow these people around? What could you possibly hope to obtain surveilling people who made a complaint, sitting in a hotel room, spending God knows how much money, stupid amounts of money? following these people around. Do you know what I did that made the difference? Seriously? And, and, it, and it wasn't that big of a deal? Let me ask you a really stupid question. Where's the, if you want to get information on a kid, who are you going to talk to? Who's the best person to talk to? Other than the kid? Yeah, other than the kid. Come on, guys, common sense. Who's the best person parents, to talk to? Parents. Bingo. The wife wasn't going to talk to us. She's nuttier than a fruitcake. But she was divorced. I went out, I talked to David Arvizo. He was extremely unreceptive, told me he wasn't going to talk to me, that he wanted to talk to Michael. I told him that's never going to happen. And all I'm going to do is come back with a subpoena. But before I do that and create a situation, give me half an hour, answer a couple questions. And if you still don't want to talk to me, 
Nobody's going to make you. We're not going to force the issue. He sat with me at a, at a, a, a Caro's restaurant over in Rosemead, not far from their house, for almost three and a half hours. And he never stopped talking. And that's where 90% of our information was developed from, from David. And unfortunately, Tom couldn't call him as a witness because of the domestic violence that, um, deal that he had made. Wow. And Tom just didn't want to bring him in. But the bottom line is David Arvisa was nothing but cooperative and helpful to us. And it wasn't like he was going after his own kids. He was going after Janet, who had forced these kids to make these allegations, to do these things. I feel badly. I don't know if David has a relationship with his kids anymore. I have no clue. But when all is said and done, how hard would it have been to just go knock on David's door and have a conversation with him? What's the big deal? And everything that I developed from that point forward, including, by the way, Chris Tucker, although the phone records I already had, but, but everything that I developed from that point forward, well, I shouldn't say everything, 99% came from, came from David or 90% came from David. A lot of it came from the discovery, the stupidity of the discovery and some of these idiotic things that these witnesses had said. Um, and again, it, it really didn't amount to anything more than common sense, but nobody bothered to do that, and Mark included. Instead, he put his investigator, Brad Miller, out following this family around, taking pictures of meeting at McDonald's. Who cares? What's the point in that? You know, what do you hope to gain from, from following these people around? So again... Mark didn't really do much of anything, to tell you the truth. And Well, do you think that had Garagos remained lead counsel, he could or would have acquitted Michael? No. No. Without doing the proper work, he was not on the proper trail. He had had the case for, I don't know how long, close to a year, I think. There was nothing in his file, nothing in the stuff that they turned over. And, and subsequently, you have to remember, I went to work for Mark. I was actually there in his office with him for six more years. That's a separate story. But when all is said and done, I had worked with Mark many, many times before. Again, went on a rider years ago, you know, long before Michael Jackson. I, I knew him, again, it's a small community and I knew Mark for years. But the bottom line is he was he was not on the right path. And they were they were never they were never going to get done what Tom and Susan and I did. And in fact, same with Sanger, Bob Sanger. I really don't, nice enough guy, don't misunderstand. I really don't know what purpose he served. I don't know what he was doing there other than he was somebody local to walk into court and put it over to another date. Garagos, he, Garagos also receives, a, like, I guess a lot of criticism for a couple of key events that happened during his watch. For example, the televised arraignment when Michael jumped up on top of that car and mm -hmm. also the 60 Minutes interview with Ed Bradley. I I don't know that that uh, I don't know that he had anything to do with Michael jumping up on the car. I know he was there. Uh, he and Pat Harris were there. I don't know anything about setting up the interview with Ed Bradley. Did Mark set that up? I think so. I think that happened under his watch. And yeah, Michael was definitely a little bit out of sorts in that interview, in my opinion, behaving in quite a, a funny way. And again. Yeah, just giving some answers that were a bit left field. But they're the two main things that I feel that he's got criticism for, uh, aside from the handling of the case. He gave away part of the defense strategy and then um, the prosecutors changed all the dates on the indictment. So had he not given that away, then it's possible they would have walked Michael out of court um, on an alibi. Well then, well, then you've just answered your own question. Did, Mike, did, did Mark do anything to help Michael? No. <laughs> of 
clearly no. Why would you do something like that? Um, I wasn't involved in the case then. And again, I typically don't, I don't, we don't really watch TV in our house. So I wasn't following the case. Again, it's, it's just not something that I do. I have work to do if it's, if it, if the case doesn't involve me, I, I, I really pay very little or no attention to it whatsoever, unless the attorney or the investigator involved happens to be a friend of mine. But in that particular case, I really didn't pay any attention until we were brought in. And I know uh, with with respect to Mark, I sort of had to reinvent the wheel. So, yeah, he didn't do anything to help Michael. I'm, I know he took a lot of money. And didn't he, he brought in Ben, right? Braffman? Yes. Yeah. And I know that cost a small fortune. And, and again, Ben's a very nice person. Um, he has his own investigators back east. I don't I don't go to New York. But uh, um, Ben didn't do anything, again, other than take away a lot of money that should have been there to help our team. Um, that was probably the biggest hindrance that we had is there was virtually no money. I couldn't even tell you if Tom ever got paid and I got paid by accident. So, you know, again, not a, not a conversation that we ever had. And if there was no cash left, again, it was simply because of... Uh, all the money that went to people like Braffman and Garagos. And, you know, unfortunately, Michael was surrounded by people that just wanted something from him. It was horrific. Hard to feel bad for a guy like that, no matter who you are, how much money you have. So anyway, but yeah, Mark. Oh, and the other and then subsequently too, the other issue that I had with Mark and Tom, you know, I, I'm working for Mark. I'm, I've always been friends with Tom. And then Mark made some disparaging public comments, didn't he? He said something incredibly stupid that uh, sort of caused a rift between the two of them. So, you know, I just, I never told Mark if I talked to Tom and I never told Tom if I, well, Tom knew I was working at Mark's. I just, I avoided any conversation about Jackson, the trial, anything. There was no point in it. There's just no point in it. He actually claimed in his book that he did all the legwork on the Jackson case, and because of that, anybody who came in to replace him could have won the trial. Yeah, didn't he say a first-year law student? Yeah, that was it. A first-year law student could have won the case. Yeah. Okay, you know, again, look, you can, you can, welcome to the First Amendment, you can say anything you want. It's just not true. It's just not true. Um, yeah, I mean... If it were remotely close to being accurate, then why did Susan have to build the files? Why weren't they already done? This was a grand jury indictment. This is a case that was going to trial. This wasn't a case that you were going to try and get kicked out at a preliminary hearing. This was a grand jury indictment. It was set for trial. It was just a matter of when. So when you don't have your witness files and you don't have your discovery how can you possibly claim that you laid the foundation for anything? You know, again, that's why when you, when you, when you talk about that part of Mark's book, I, I hear I can prove I can disprove. And in this case, it's bullshit. Excuse my language. Mark is, uh, you know, Mark is Mark. He likes the attention. He likes to be in front of a camera. That's, I guess, why he called Ed Bradley. I was not part of that, so I don't, I don't have any idea. Um, but yeah, that's not that's not how you operate. And that's why Tom didn't, uh, you know, Tom just didn't do that. But, you know, nobody ever went after Jamie Masada, who, by the way, Jamie Masada did not introduce uh, the Arvizos to Michael Jackson. Were you aware of that? No, I wasn't. No. 
Yeah, that's that's another that's another guy that that just wanted his name in the paper. He was not the one that made the introduction. There's a hairdresser that Michael had gone to for years. God, I forget her name. Karen Karen Faye did his makeup, right? Karen that's what was her name? She yeah. did makeup, yeah. And hair, I think, as well, but sometimes. Now, yeah. Well, Karen can confirm this, but there was a, a gal by the name of Carol Lemire who um, was very good friends with a woman named Arlene Kennedy. Arlene Kennedy uh, and her brother, I believe his name was Paul, had a dance studio down over off of, I think, in, in, in Los Angeles, in uh, uh, the cent- central portion of Los Angeles, nice part of town. And the Arviso kids used to go there and take tap dance lessons from Mrs. Kennedy. And she ultimately did testify at the trial, too. We brought her up there, Arlene Kennedy. Anyway, short version is Carol Lemire was very good friends with uh, Miss Kennedy. And um, she at the time was, I think, working with Karen, but she was one of the people that were doing that was doing Michael's hair. And when they found out that the kid was was allegedly, I can expand on that if you'd like, and the kid was allegedly sick, that's when Carol contacted Michael. It was not Jamie Masada. He can claim whatever he wants didn't happen. It was Carol Lemire, plain and simple. A very sweet woman who lives in Culver City, California, that when you walk into her house, she's got she's got Michael memorabilia like you've never seen. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all gifts from Michael. And if you if you ever get a chance to interview Evelyn, Evie, Michael's assistant of God knows how many years, She'll confirm all of that. It was it was Carol that introduced them. Anyway, um, if you don't mind, if would you be able to expand on what you said before? Because I've often thought, like, I mean, clearly the Arviso family were, you know, the masters of pulling the wool over people's eyes. To what extent do you think that Gavin was a sick child? Well, it's not what I think. It was in the discovery. Gavin had what's called, and you can look it up. It's called a Wilms. Tumor, W-I-L-M-S apostrophe, tumor. It's the only thing that was unusual about Gavin getting a Wilms tumor is the fact that it was on his, uh, or that he got it around the age, I think, of seven or eight. Typically, a Wilms tumor happens in small children around the age of two or three. It's a growth on their, I always get this backwards, growth on their liver or their kidney, but I, I forget maybe the kidney. And it's got about, and again, I'm not trying to negate any kind of cancer, any kind of tumor. It's got about a 90 some odd uh, success rate if it's caught in time. Gavin did have that because again, that was turned over in the discovery. I saw it in a letter plain as day that he was diagnosed with a Wilms tumor. And Janet got up there and said, his cancer was so rare, nobody ever heard of it. You know, again, I don't know what that was all about. I'll tell you some other disturbing issues. And in fact, Ron Zonin is now married to, uh, God, she testified. What's her name? Palanca, Louise Palanca. Yeah, Louise, Louise Palanca. I went to interview, and this is where it was somewhat comical, if you will. I went to interview a guy named Joseph Coleman. They call him Fritz Coleman. He's an NBC uh, news reporter who alleges to be a comedian. And uh, he was one of the people, supposedly, that was at the uh, at Miss Jamie Masada's place doing these comedy shows or comedy clubs or schools or whatever the hell they were. Anyway, 
So I went to talk to Fritz Coleman, who who was very proud of the fact that um, he had gone to visit Gavin in the hospital and that he had raised money for Gavin's medical expenses and and that he had brought his daughters, I believe he has two or three daughters, over to see where Gavin's, Gavin's father had rented an apartment in East L.A., a very bad part of town. And they didn't live in a bad part of town. They lived in El Monte, which is a very nice home, David's mother's house. They lived in a very nice home, but at the time he was in the hospital, they needed something that was affordable. And so they rented this really bad apartment in a really bad part of town. Um, but it wasn't, that wasn't the way that they were living. It's not as if they were living in this horrific squalor, which is how they sort of, how, how Janet sort of portrayed the way they were living. So bottom line is, um, I was interviewing, uh, this Fritz Coleman and I said, so what were you raising money for? And he said, medical expenses. The kid was going through chemotherapy. And I said, so did you go visit him while he was in the hospital? Yes. I said, what hospital did you go visit him? Kaiser over on Sunset. I said, are you familiar how Kaiser works? Um, if you're not familiar with it, you guys, if you're not familiar with it, you, you pay toward Kaiser, you go to their facility, you walk out with no bill. If you get an aspirin or a heart transplant, you physically walk out with no bill. You subscribe to Kaiser Permanente and you walk out with no bill. So when I said, you went to visit him at Kaiser and I said to Coleman, I said, do you know how Kaiser works? You should have seen his face, went completely white, went completely blank. It just dawned on him, if you're a Kaiser member, you have no medical bills. And that's when he knew he had been duped. So when he got up on the stand, he changed that to say that he was trying to subsidize the family's expenses, like pay for the apartment, pay for this, pay for that. But that's not what Janet was going around telling people. And again, you know, here's this woman who would go around and cry. My son has cancer. He's got this. Got... And again, not trying to negate the kid's condition. I get it. He was sick. No matter how you cut it, he was going through chemotherapy. Totally understand it. Totally appreciate it. But the short version is they didn't need money for for medical expenses. That was that was just nonsense. And um when I left his house, I went over to Louise Polonker's house. And by the time I got there, she had already been briefed. And so she made sure she had called uh, Coleman or he had called her. And so she made sure that she told me that these were for medical or, uh, for for uh, other costs that that were attributable to the medical condition, but not for for medical costs, not for hospital costs. And then. Um, then I found out that she had, uh, she told me, inadvertently told me in the interview that she had given these people money, two checks for $10,000 each, that her sister was her accountant. And so immediately when I went back to Tom uh, and Susan, I told them what was happening and I wrote a subpoena and I served her with a subpoena for the two checks, which we admitted. And both of those checks went into accounts that were in the name of Maria uh, Ventura that is Janet Arvizo's mother. And that it, the account, Maria, it was Maria's account, but Janet was able to sign on the account and withdraw money, but it wasn't under her social security number. So Janet knew what she was doing. This was all preconceived. Janet was fully aware of what she was doing, taking money from people and and I don't want to use the term laundering it, but she was filtering it. She was running it through her mother's bank account so that people couldn't trace it, so that it's still, if you, if somebody went to go look her up, such as the police, they would find out that she didn't have anything. And that's just absolutely wasn't true. Huh. Wasn't the case. Smart gal, you know, I mean, criminal minded, 
not, uh, you know, but, but she knew how to work the system. You know, the whole thing with the JC pennies, you know, again, once again, that was utter nonsense. And her husband, her ex-husband, David, told me that Janet set the whole thing up. Utter nonsense. So anyway. It was quite a profitable career for her. Unfortunately, yes. And unfortunately, though, you know, she, uh, you know, she ultimately got charged for the Medicare fraud because, again, I was able to find the documents that once the case settled, she had previously, you know, when she was getting, when she was collecting uh, welfare, not Medicare, when she was collecting welfare, um, from the document settlements of the documents and running a history uh, I think I ran a credit history, you know, we subpoenaed a credit history on her and we found the Ford dealership um, three days before she signed the welfare as a welfare recipient with her mother. She went and bought a brand new paid cash, I think fifteen, eighteen thousand dollars $18,000 for a brand new Ford Taurus. Didn't disclose it. Didn't disclose in the application that she had a civil suit that had settled within the last six months or that she had any kind of whatever. All of that money she was putting into the bank account that had her name on it, but not under her social security number, but it had her mother's name on it. It was all being, again, I hate to use the term laundered, but it was all being filtered through her mother's bank account. And this was all stuff that we had for the trial. And, you know, again, this is one of these things, typical law enforcement, they don't investigate the victim. And they should. You know, when somebody's making an allegation like that, and again, I don't care if it's Michael Jackson or, or Joe Schmo, when somebody's making an allegation, you have a duty to make sure that they're credible. And that was the problem. You know, it, 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 God love Tom. He did a great job, no doubt about it. But it, they, they gave us so much material to prove that they were completely incredible. It made Tom's job a lot easier. And Janet was nuttier than a fruitcake. You know, she was prepared to expand on everything imaginable. And that's why all of a sudden she said, you know what, they were going to get they were going to get kidnapped by hot air balloons, I guess, to Brazil. <laughs> Correct me if I'm uh, wrong, the jet stream runs the completely different way. It would have taken them, if anywhere, to Iceland, not Brazil. <laughs> Which is a beautiful part of the world, but not I'm where sure they it is to go. Someday, so, thank, thanks to Google Earth, I I see it whenever I want, but I'm not going there. <laughs> But, but that's kind of my point. You know, Mark didn't do any of that. And he can say whatever he wants in his book. You know, again, welcome to the First Amendment. But that, none of that's true. That was, that, was either, that was either Tom, Susan, or me. You know, even, again, I don't want to, I don't want to say anything disparaging about Sanger, but Sanger, they, they weren't looking at any of that stuff. And I don't really understand why. I mean, I like Bob, don't misunderstand. But they weren't looking at any of that stuff. People want to be part of a big case and, you know, a case with a lot of notoriety and it, it doesn't have the effect that people believe it has. I get people, unfortunately, the internet forces you to put things like your resume on there, cases you've worked on. And when you put that on there, people look at you and they say, oh, that guy's too expensive. I can't afford him. And they move on. So it doesn't do me any good. I got calls from investigators that were willing to work on this case for absolutely nothing. Just wanted to have their name attached to it. And I, I remember one guy called and he said, I said, we don't have the money. He said, I'll do it for free. And I said, why would you do that? I wouldn't. I, I have, you know, I, I can't take a picture of, I can't take the picture out of the Santa Barbara newspaper of me and Tom walking outside of the courthouse over to Wells Fargo and say, yeah, I don't have enough money to make my house payment, but here's a picture of me and Tom Mesero. Can I just give you that instead? That just doesn't pay bills. So I, I don't understand why people want to do this, but but everybody wants their name in the paper. I just don't get it. I really don't. 
So when you when you're talking about um, Janet's sort of prior history and what she'd been able to achieve with different <laughs> sort of scams, do you like? It seemed like Tom Sneddon was like such a dog with a bone that if he'd even taken a cursory glance at the Aviso family and Janet in particular, do you think he would have like used them and and or not used them, but you know worked with them to 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 get this Michael case on the stand? Or do you think he would have went, hell no, get me away from this, get me someone well, a bit more credible? And, and this is what, frankly, I really don't understand because if you look at the global picture, the first thing I was telling you about, these people in Toronto, why did Sneddon make such an issue about sending the police officers over to Toronto to spend four days talking to this person, whoever he was, I don't remember his name. Why would they spend four days doing that to turn around and say, yeah, we don't find this guy credible, and then do absolutely nothing to look into the Arvizo's background? When we got the discovery, there was virtually nothing other than a couple of DMV runs and I think a, a computer printout of, of uh, criminal history, which Janet had, um, I think she had filed, a, she had a print card on file for a guard card. She wanted to become a security guard or something of that nature. And so that's all they did. They didn't look into anything else. They didn't do a, a civil background. They didn't you know, to see if there's any lawsuits. Obviously, that's how they recovered the JCPenney thing. They didn't go look at her booking photo. I subpoenaed the booking photo from uh, West Covina Police Department. She didn't have her shirt ripped, as she indicated in her deposition. She was not disheveled. You could see you could see the, the top buttons, top three buttons on the blouse in the booking photo when she was arrested for shoplifting. So where's all of this destruction? But see, he didn't bother to do any of that. They just didn't bother to do any of that. And then why did they send a team? Why did they send two guys to Toronto for four days or a week? Why did they send an entire group? You know, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, there was after, shortly after, I think it was 95, 96, after the Jordy Chandler issue, before the Toronto issue, um, Sneddon, Robel, uh, there were five people. There was a gal who's now a judge, former DA in Los Angeles, and I think two uh, LAPD officers who all who contacted the Barnes family, contacted the Robeson family. They both said, we're not going to talk to you. And yet they all got on a plane and flew to Australia. Then they walked up to the door, knocked on the door. We'd like to talk to you. They said, was this a joke? We told you no. Close the door. End of conversation. They were gone for seven days. Huh. Nice vacation that the taxpayers paid for everybody to go to Australia. Um, but but it served no purpose. So, you know, that's another thing. Um, Wade Robeson, if I may, I, I'm so Please. disturbed about that. I'm Please. so disturbed about that. You know, one of the things, one of the functions that I do have and one of the things that I have always been very proud of I go out and I interview witnesses, and if I feel a witness is completely incredible and they can't be used, they can't be trusted, they can't whatever, we're not going to use them, that's the first thing I go back and tell the attorney, in this case, Tom. I go back and I say, look, this is not somebody we can use. This is not somebody who's believable. You know, Wade Robson was the first person that Tom put on the stand. He was completely credible. He told me everything, everything he testified to didn't happen, nothing happened, didn't do this, didn't do this. All of a sudden now he's he's trying to jump on the bandwagon and try and collect some money. What's up with that? So I interviewed him at great length. I went out to his house. I met with his mom. I met with his sister. I met with his brother. I interviewed him at great length on numerous occasions. 
And none of this was there. None of this was real. He never made any, he never lost eye contact. There was nothing in there that caused me to believe that he was lying to me. As opposed to one other person who I interviewed, who I think was was lying through his teeth, but that's a separate issue. And I opted and I told Tom, I said, we can't call this person. There's, he's just not telling the truth. And, and when Wade Robson did that, and, and you know, the thing, the sad part about it is I, I'm actually friends with his brother, Shane. His brother, Shane, is a, is a private investigator. Did you know that? I had no idea. <laughs> no. Yeah. Wade Robson's brother, Shane, is a, he, when, he, when they were in Australia, he was a police officer in Brisbane. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Brisbane. Brisbane. That's where I grew Brisbane. up. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Shane was a police officer there. And the family had moved to California. He stayed back there with his father. And the family had moved to California to uh, sort of pursue a, a career for Wade. And um, uh, his father passed away. And Shane was basically down there by himself. And he didn't want to be there by himself. So he came out. And when he came out, because of his background as a police officer, he became a private investigator. And so while the trial was going on, I I couldn't really have any kind of interaction with him. But after the trial, 2005, Shane and I have been friends ever since. I refer work to him. I talk to him all the time. Um, I know his wife. I know his two kids. Um, you know, and, and when this came out, I called Shane and I said, look, we're going to have to agree to disagree. I'm not going to discuss it with you, but I, I'm really sorry that Wade opted to do this because if somebody asks me, I'm going to tell them that I don't believe a word he's saying. Didn't happen. Wade never, you know, again, numerous, numerous conversations with him. And so, you know, Shane and I have never discussed it since. We talk to each other periodically, not as much as we used to. Um, but uh, he's a great guy. And, yeah, he's a, he's a licensed private investigator in California. Sad situation, the entire Robson affair. And, yeah, I think we're all equally as uh, bewildered and, and disappointed as well. I think especially for a fan of Michael like myself, growing up in the era when Wade Robson was so close to Michael and we could see that Michael helped set his career up and set him up basically to where he became, you know, quite good at his job and he was very well respected. And then, right. yeah, as, as the lead sort of witness called in this case, the opening witness, and then a few years later this, it's just so disappointing and bewildering. It is. It really is. And, and, for what it's worth, I'm actually quite pleased that nobody ever contacted me because I would I would only tell the truth. And I just I, I just think what Wade did was incredibly I, I just don't believe it. I think it's wrong. I'm just wrong. <clears throat> Yet I appreciate and respect my friendship with Shane. And uh, you know, I get it. That's his family. We're, I'm not family, you know, we're just friends. Yeah, anyway, I, I don't really understand that, other than it's all about money and I think it's terrible. That's what I think. Speaking of money, someone, well, not someone, but an entity that made a lot of money out of this whole case was was the media, made a <laughs> yeah. lot of money. But in the end, with the the, uh, the the not guilty verdict, they lost a lot of money. They would have continued making like up to billions of dollars if, if the trial had uh, put Michael behind bars. So what were your thoughts when, when you sort of were being hired around the case in the media and how much exposure the trial would get? Did that sort of make you feel any way in particular? Did it, did it have to affect any sort of way that the case went forward on, on your side? No, 
I would have I would have done again if anybody that walked in off the street was being charged I would have done the exact same thing the one thing I'd like to say about the media that was really disturbing and again I I absolutely can't stand the woman um, but there was a woman she calls herself Aphrodite Jones who was all over Michael I mean Michael's a child molester he's a bad person he's to go to prison um, she would sit there and make jokes throughout the trial with Diane Diamond they thought it was a big joke and then, of course, after the fact, when when she found out that she couldn't write a book about a conviction because there wasn't one, now she had to change it and wrote some some idiotic book called the what'd she call it, the Michael Jackson Conspiracy. You know, again, just she she was going wherever the money was, and all of a sudden it's a big conspiracy. You know, I I wouldn't read the book, I wouldn't give it the time of day, but. Uh, you know, people like that. Diane Diamond, I don't know if you remember, oh. before the trial was over, Diane Diamond got access, somehow got access to a state prison or a prison somewhere. And she was showing a jail cell saying, this is where Michael will be spending the rest of his life. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, how disgustingly pathetic is that? She was, they showed a picture of Neverland, said, Michael's going to, Michael lives here and now he's going to live here. And they showed a jail cell, a six by nine jail cell. What the hell was that all about? She and owes her career to Michael. She has built her career on Michael. Does and, she have a career? Sadly, I believe so. In in huh. the media that she she's still working, I think. I have no idea. Couldn't care yeah. less. No idea. She does. But but, but you know, the, these people I see these people like Diane Diamond and Aphrodite Jones, whose real name is Diane Brown and and lost body fluid when I told her her name wasn't Aphrodite Jones. Um, <laughs> you know, they 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 just they go wherever the money is. They go to whatever they can possibly exploit. And I asked, I, I forget what show it was on. My wife would know, but I was on a show shortly afterward, and they were calling themselves experts. And I said to I said to both of them, I said, "What makes you an expert?" And Aphrodite Jones started off with this. Well, I I watched this trial. I watched that trial. I saw this trial. I saw. All I heard was somebody who sat there and watched a bunch of trials. And I said, I I, I told her, I said, I've seen every James Bond movie ever made. Doesn't make me a spy. <laughs> and just because you've sat there and watched a trial doesn't make you an expert. You have no idea what's in the discovery. You have no idea what what motions. You know, do you know the one thing that that again nobody paid any attention to? There's all this hoopla about Michael's um, and this, by the way, can be attributed 99% to Susan only, not Tom. Michael's computers. Actually, I take a I take actually Sanger and Susan, I think, worked on this motion. But Michael's, they, they talked about pornography on Michael's computers over and over and over and over and over. But did you notice the computers never came in during the trial? Yes, notice that for sure. Because, because Susan and Sanger, mostly Susan, produced a motion to, um, um, to keep the computers out because there were no logins. There were, you know, again, this is typical of Michael. Anybody can go anywhere they want in the house. But there was no login on the computer. There were 47 different users that they could attribute it to. Nobody could say that Michael looked at this and somebody else looked at this. There were dates. The, the, computer, the computers registered dates. And again, this was an antiquated computer, probably from the mid-90s. And the computer registers dates. The problem with the computer is it, it was like when you, when you fire it up in the year 2005, it actually was showing the year like 1996. <laughs> so because of that, they weren't able to use it. And again, these are the kinds of things that, that these, these 
so-called experts like Aphrodite Jones and Diane Diamond don't know anything about. They don't know anything about what was going on behind the scenes. And for them to come out and start talking about the computers and talking about things, they have no clue. These are not experts. These are just just rumor mongers. You know, I, I forget her name. Uh, Don, who was the reporter? Linda Deutsch of AP and Don something or other. I'm sorry, I forgot her name. Uh, who was working for the Santa Barbara newspaper. They were the only real reporters there. They were people that were actually waiting to, you know, Jane Velez Mitchell, who is actually a very good friend of mine. I, I love and adore Jane. Even so, she was just, it was all rumor monger crap. You know, none of it was legitimate reporting. None of it was legitimate news. And it was really nothing. I, I mean, the AP, Linda Deutsch, was the only one that was really reporting and, and Don were the only ones that were really reporting what happened during that day. The rest of it was all conjecture. This could happen if this goes wrong. And that person says this. And what about this? And I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous. I, again, a media circus, second to none, and just beyond stupid. We quit watching the news. Tom wouldn't have anything to do with it. And then when E, was it Entertainment TV, came out with a reenactment of the day. Oh, that's right. And, yes. some, <laughs> and some putts with a white wig. It's like, Really? Okay. They had a Michael Jackson um, impersonator, I think. I, Michael, it was pretty, pretty abysmal. I, Did they have someone know, impersonating you in the background, Scott? <laughs> no, they, they didn't actually, thank God. And Or or, uh, or Brian Oxman, who was probably very incensed about that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, again, I, I've worked with and I know Sean uh, Holly Chapman and, and – or excuse me, Sean Chapman Hall. And, you know, Sean's, she's a great lawyer. And why she participated in that, I don't get. She's, uh, I have a, I had a case. We, Tom and I walked off of it, but we had a case. She represents Cat Williams and we had Suge Knight in a uh, robbery case out of Beverly Hills. So I've worked with her on, on several occasions. Again, she's a great lawyer, but I don't know why she was doing that. And I, I've, I've actually always wanted to ask her, but frankly, you know, it's, that was then. I'm not gonna not gonna get involved. But yeah, we tried to avoid. I tried to avoid the news as much as I could. I, you know, we all had those condos. I don't know if you know the story behind the condos. Um, uh, we had five condos that we had rented, and everybody had their own condo. And um, so at the end of the night, everybody went their separate way. So you just um, you just raised the specter of Brian Oxman. Um, what are your he's been disbarred you know that you know he's been disbarred right yes okay what what are your thoughts on Brian Oxman he's an idiot (laughs) I mean did he contribute anything to the defense or or did he coast and do nothing or did he actually damage he caused more problems than he was ever going to be worth. Number one, he has never tried a case in his life, let alone a criminal matter, which is why Tom was brought in. Oxman was there, but they didn't ask Oxman because he has no experience in that arena. You know, you, you heard that recording that he made, ranting and raving, and Diane Diamond's sound guy, I guess, picked it up, and, you know, that, that was pretty entertaining. By the way, that the person that he was talking about firing was me, but that's a separate issue. And... um uh, yeah, Oxman, in fact, was, we found out after the fact that Oxman was out there subpoenaing records, claiming to be, you know, the attorney of record, which I guess he was one of, 
Um, he was subpoenaing records and not turning them over to us. And in fact, Oxman reported the welfare fraud. You know, Tom was going to use the welfare fraud when Janet got on the stand. Oxman reported it to the um, people over at welfare. And I had to go, literally, I had to go unring the bell and prevent them from filing it. We needed, Tom needed Janet on the stand so he could ask her about the welfare fraud without her knowledge that we were fully aware of the, uh, of the fraud itself. And Oxman, Oxman reported it because he thought if Janet got arrested, she couldn't testify. And they would have just given her immunity at that point. So, you know, again, but this is, this is Oxman's inability to comprehend, understand, or, or, or defend a criminal matter. He, he had no experience. I think he did Randy's divorce. I think that was his big uh, claim to fame. He's an idiot. And, uh, just, uh, we, you know, uh, we used to have to drag in box after box after box. And every time Michael showed up, this schmuck would just drop everything and run to stand in front of the camera. In fact, I got the, he, he stayed in the condo that I had for a little while. When he left, I went in and I called Tom and I said, what do you want me to do with his makeup? Should I mail it back to him or just throw it in the trash? <laughs> camera ready. Camera ready. I, I am not kidding, by the way. I am totally <laughs> not kidding. I'm trying to think. I'd have to ask my wife. I don't remember what his makeup of choice was if we're going to do a plug for, uh, I think it was Revlon. <laughs> Pretty sure. Yeah, totally serious. And, and it was imperative. He always had to wear a red tie. Apparently, he thought he had a signature. You know, he, he, he was closer to Rodney Dangerfield than anybody else. You know, he, he <laughs> got no respect. He deserved no respect. But, yeah, he always had to wear a red tie. That was, that was his, which I found out much, much later. That was his, quote, signature, as if he was so popular that everybody would know this. It's like Mark and his Ray-Bans. Mark thinks that his signature, he always has to be photographed in Ray-Bans. And he does that, I think, because Ray-Ban mails him glasses from time to time. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> Did you, you know, ever see Oxman asleep in court? Oh, sure. Many times he would nod off. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's because he's up all night doing his makeup. Nobody ever taught him how to do it. <laughs> I'm sure he would put it on, take it off, put it on, take it off. Yeah. That yeah, was pretty funny. But I did. Tom, 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 <laughs> Tom actually said, yeah, just send it, put it in a box and send it all back to him. I said, you know, I'm going to just throw it away. And he said, nope, because then he'll accuse you of throwing something away. And the minute he got it, I don't remember, but I think, I don't remember if he called me or if he called my house and talked to my wife, but he said that it was his wife's makeup. Now, I never saw her there, but he insisted that it was his wife's makeup because I think I wrote a little note here wanting to make sure you get your makeup back or something like, you know, something <laughs> obnoxious. I'm kind of a wise ass. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> I'm a smart out. So. Just um, topic jumping a bit, Scott. Oh, wait, can There's I something I wanted myself? Hang on. Can I protect yeah. myself real quick? I want to go back to Oxman. In my opinion, exercising my First Amendment privilege, he's an idiot. Now go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sure you know, Brian, that Court TV was able to record a conversation you had on a cell phone outside of the courthouse some time ago. Take a listen to this. Please, I want the fire. 
it wasn't long after that that you were removed from the case is that fair to say was there a relationship no I don't think that's what it is at all uh, Michael would not sign a substitution of attorney I am still the attorney of a record in that case um, I had heard about this tape recording I never could understand the words which were said in the tape recording and I couldn't understand what was going on uh, well you were the, the one saying the words Brian don't you know what the words were uh, it doesn't sound like me, I can tell you that for sure. Well, you're not denying that's you on the cell phone I in the couldn't, parking I couldn't lot. Tell you, you I couldn't tell you one on way or another. Phone? I couldn't tell Brian. you one way or another. You couldn't tell us if that's you on that table. I, I cannot tell at all. Sure cannot. Okay. Um, Brian, I want you to take a listen to uh, another uh, phone part of that phone conversation. People treat one another with respect. I have no alliances. I want to be treated with respect. You can tell I didn't yell at him. Susan, you told me that I wasn't important enough to have a place to sleep. No one's going to pay for anything anymore, I guess. Is that how it works? It means that someone has to pay the bill. You don't get no respect. You know, well, Brian, first of all, are you going to deny that that's you? I couldn't tell you one way or another, Lisa. It's not uh, able, I'm not able to hear it. I've heard this before. I couldn't tell you one way or another. Michael had a PI on the 1993 case, the Chandler case, um, and that PI was Anthony Pellicano. <laughs> I just wondered, firstly, did you ever have any dealings with him in your career? And secondly, Negative. did he... Did he leave you anything of use, um, particularly with regard to the prior bad acts evidence? Um, I, I did not have anything to do with Pelicano whatsoever. And if he had left anything to be used, I wouldn't have touched it with a 10-foot. I wouldn't have touched it with, with Oxman's arm. I wouldn't have touched <laughs> it with a 10-foot pole. That guy was so volatile. That guy was so dangerous. He, uh, you know, I think he's still in prison, isn't he? Still in federal prison. Um, maybe he's out. I don't know. Don't care. Um, yeah, I, I would not have. I don't want anything to do with his work product because I know how he obtained 90% of his evidence. Those recorded conversations were done illegally, um, which is why he went to prison. Yeah. Nope. 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 No. So no, was, it a mis was it a mistake then to hire him? Michael to have hired him? Well, um, I couldn't say one way or the other. At the time, Michael's attorney, um, although people believe it to have been Carl, um, I'm sorry, uh, Johnny Cochran, although it was Cochran's firm, the, the majority of the work was done by Carl Douglas. Um, I don't believe, and I've never discussed it with Carl, and I'm still very good friends with him to this day. I don't believe that Carl is the one that brought in Pelicano. I think that Michael did that, or one of Michael's handlers at the time did that on their own. Um, um, I don't think that, I, I know that Carl Douglas would never have done anything or engaged uh, anybody that would have done something illegal. I think it's an issue of, of, of again people that you can work with and that's why Tom and I work well together because number one I would never throw him under a bus and he knows that I would never do anything that would create a problem for either one of us I don't do things that are illegal I'm not a criminal but when you're working with people and again you know Pelicano was holding press conferences 
Um, I can't imagine what any one of my attorneys would say if I decided to go out and say, oh, I'm going to have a press conference. I, I can't imagine what they would do. They'd go bananas. I, I just wouldn't do that. But Pelicano was doing that, you know, and um, I wouldn't get I wouldn't get within a thousand yards of anything that he did. Wouldn't want it. Yeah, wouldn't want it. So, you know, there were things there were interviews when we got the discovery, there were interviews again, because under 1108, the prior bad acts issue, they did turn over some recordings and um, none, none of it by Pelicano, by law enforcement. <clears throat> and there was a, uh, there was a recording um, by a potential witness who, who did not testify um, that talked to one of the detectives, female detective, and told that detective that he was molested as a child. The detective had the name of the individual who had molested this, this witness, potential witness, and uh, <clears throat> did absolutely no follow-up on it. She's being told that, that this, this person is a child molester. She's a sergeant with the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's at the time. She's being told this person's a child molester and that he molested this particular witness many, many years ago. Well, I get the statute may be gone on that case, but, you know, once a child molester, pretty much always a child molester. So, again, the bottom line is if he actually did that, why didn't she launch an investigation into this individual, find out where he's living and go forward? Because Michael was always the target. They didn't really care about who else they were going to bring down. All they wanted to do was go after Michael. And that was part of their problem. You know, they couldn't see the forest for the trees. And they were so focused on trying to nail Michael and trying to get Michael convicted of a crime he just simply didn't commit that they paid no attention to everything else that was around him, the big picture. I have no idea how I even got off on that tangent. But that had to do with the 1993, was it 93 or 91? I guess 93. 93. That had to do with the Jordy Chandler stuff, the interviews that were done. Yes, they did turn over um, uh, the recordings, some of the recordings. Um, but for the most part, um, we had nothing from Pelicanos people. And nor, you know, I can tell you this. I know that Carl and uh Carl and Tom are friends, and nobody ever bothered to contact. We never bothered to contact him. I could have easily called Carl and said, what do you have? I wouldn't have gotten, again, I just wouldn't have done that. I would not have done that. Yeah, I don't want anything to do with his stuff. You know, there's an expression in the court, a legal expression called fruits of a poisonous tree, <clears throat> and that's what I see Pelicano's material as being. So, nope. So just to clarify, Scott, what you're saying is that they interviewed somebody who they thought Michael had molested. The person yes. said, no, Michael never touched me, but I was molested by somebody else. And essentially the police said, well, we don't care about that because it's not Michael Jackson. Well, they didn't say that. Basically, they said, that's a shame. This was wow. a, again, this is a female sergeant from the sheriff's department who, as we speak, is, unless she's retired, um, who later became not not in Santa Barbara County, but in a, in a nearby county. She actually became the chief of police in another city in California. Same individual and did absolutely nothing about the fact that this this person was saying that as a child, he was molested by this other person. And and this woman, the, the detective even said, you know, this guy was saying I was molested by this person who was involved, you know, with my family, so to speak. And at one point, the, the detective says, the sergeant says, do you know so-and-so? And there's there's dead silence. There's probably about 40 seconds of dead air silence. And he said, that's the person. And her response was, that's terrible. Wow. Not like, 
Let me let me find out where he's in where he is and call the local authorities. If the guy's in L.A., let me call LAPD. No, nope, nothing. Move on. Let's go back to Michael. Wow. Yeah, it's shocking, disgusting. Shocking Again, it, you know, Michael was a target. He he was not being investigated. He was targeted. You know, it's interesting the way local law enforcement and federal law enforcement works in the United States, and I can't speak for any place else. But the reason why the FBI rarely lose any cases, and, and they do, and the reason why the, the Drug Enforcement Agency or, or Homeland Security, the reason why those people don't lose cases is because they investigate first and then they arrest. Where, where state law enforcement, at least in California, they just go out and they arrest the first person that, that they get to, and then they worry about the investigation after the fact. Who does that? Mm-hmm. And that's why they have cases like Robert Blake, and that's why they have cases like Michael Jackson and O.J. Simpson. That's why they lose these cases. Go out and investigate your case and make sure that you have enough information or you have witnesses that are believable, that are credible. And I get it. Snedden said after the fact, you can't choose your victims. That's, that's bullshit. Excuse me. I'm sorry. That's not true. You can choose your victims. If somebody's not credible, you move on. But he was so desperate to get Michael, it didn't matter. The first, the first person that came along and said, he did it. That's all they wanted. That's all they cared about. I, I'm guessing the guy in Toronto, they couldn't put the nexus and, and show that this guy ever even knew Michael Jackson. But the problem is with the, with the Arvizos, they could prove it. They knew that, that he had been there. They knew that he knew Michael. Who goes on television... And says and says that 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 this kid is. I mean, the kid. You saw the you saw the video. The kid jumped over on Michael. It was totally without any authorization. He just did it on his own to get on television. And the bottom line is, then all of a sudden, all after he says he's sleeping in his bed, which Michael didn't say. The kid said that. Um, all of a sudden, what the the molestation starts after it's been publicly announced. Really, what kind of an idiot would believe any of that? Can I tell you one of my favorite stories? Please, yeah. Do you remember Chris Carter? Let me tell you how stupid the media is. I'm beginning to sound like Donald Trump, talk about idiots. Let me tell you how stupid the media is. Do you remember Chris Carter? Remember who he was? No. He was the bodyguard that that allegedly coined the Jesus juice phrase. Oh, right, right, right. He was arrested in Las Vegas for robbing a jack-in-the-box. Do you remember that? I don't remember the arrest. Yep. He was arrested for robbing a jack-in-the-box, a fast food restaurant. He never um, testified because he was in custody. So I get a call from, couldn't tell you who, somebody from the LA Times. And we're talking the Los Angeles Times. We're not talking, you know, we're not talking some some throwaway paper that they they stick on your driveway every Friday morning like at my house that, you know, runs advertisements for the for the local hardware store. We're talking about the Los Angeles Times. I get a call from an editor, and I confirmed that she was an editor. She said, can we ask you a couple questions? I said, apart from the fact that I have a court order saying that I can't talk to the media, yeah, what can I help you with? <laughs> they said, we would like to know if you were involved, you meaning me personally, involved in the arrest of Chris Carter in Las Vegas. I said, absolutely. I, I said, let's put it in this proper perspective. So a jack-in-the-box gets robbed. And instead of calling the police, the manager of jack-in-the-box calls me on the off chance that I might be able to say, yep, that was Chris Carter who robbed the store. So instead of giving this robbery tape with a gun to the FBI and subsequent bank robberies that he was suspected of, 
to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Jack in the Box and the bank contacted me in the off chance that he could be a witness in the Michael Jackson trial. I said, yes, absolutely, that took place. Wow, what an amazing editor you are. <laughs> I mean, what a bunch of morons. <laughs> and these are people who claim to be professional reporters. These are people who claim to understand the system or understand, I don't know. I, I have no idea what prompted that. That was the second stupidest question I've ever heard. And I only say that because I know I'm going to get another one someday. <laughs> but that was mind-boggling that this guy goes out and robs a jack-in-the-box and the first thing they think of, yeah, let's just call Scott Ross and see if he knows if it's one of the possible witnesses. Oh, my God, give me a break. Anyway, <laughs> these are the people that are advising the public, telling the public what's going on out there, and they have no clue they have no clue uh, of their own what's happening. You know, again, like I said, I, I was working on with this other murder case with Tom that was dismissed two days ago. It's all on videotape. And if you watch the videotape, this guy was trying to stop the fight, not, not start the fight, the whole thing, the shooting, everything. It's on videotape. It took seven months for the LADA's office. They had to go to a preliminary hearing to dismiss the murder. It's on videotape. You can see he was trying to stop the fight. But the LAPD arrested him on the scene, and they're never, ever going to say, sorry, we made a mistake. Investigate and then, and then charge. And, and local law enforcement, just they'll never do that. I, I guess if they did, I wouldn't have a job. Amazing. As the trial was moving forward, uh, sorry, as your investigation was moving forward, I should say, what would you mm -hmm. say was the most explosive piece of information you discovered was? Um. I th I think that I think that the Chris uh, the Chris Tucker phone numbers were huge because again part of their story was that Michael brought these people down to Florida yet there was no way to connect the dots back to Michael other than through Chris Tucker and all the phone calls the the two phone calls I shouldn't say all the two phone calls made. Or, or involving Chris Tucker were from the Arvizos to Chris Tucker. So when Chris goes in there and he starts saying, I never talked to Michael about any of this. The family asked me for a way out. I put him on my plane. I took him to Miami. Plain and simple. I think that was explosive. I think that was huge. I think David Arvizos telling us about the local newspaper. There was a local newspaper in El Monte. Gosh, I forget the name of the editor. Colleen something. She came in and testified. Do you remember that? No, I don't. Gosh, I don't remember her name. What a doll she was to come in and testify. But basically, um, she had written this story about, about Gavin having a, a Wilm. I don't think she knew it was a Wilms tumor at the time, but having cancer and that the family didn't have any money. And she sort of set up this Thanksgiving dinner and this fundraiser and whatever to try and get some money. And um, again, I, I found her on my own. And when, when I interviewed her, she said that uh, after, after she ran the story about Gavin, you know, people had brought over food because they thought that they didn't have any food. And Janet said, I don't want food. I want money. Um, and that's what, God, her name was Colleen. I'm positive it was Colleen something. Anyway, um, and then when Janet contacted this woman and said, we didn't make enough money, can you run the story again? 
I don't know what they needed money for. You know, David was a teamster. He had Kaiser Hospital. All their medical bills were being paid. The only un unnecessary or inordinate expense that they had was David didn't want to have to sit all of his days in traffic. So he went down and he rented an apartment in East LA, like I said before, in a really bad part of town. But he rented the apartment halfway between where he was working and where his son was in the hospital. That's the only outside expense they had. And I think they were paying, and I don't, I don't want to negate it, but I think they were only paying about four or $500 a month for the apartment. So other than that, they were living with David's parents. They were not paying rent. Um, they were not starving. David's mother, every time I went to the house, I could smell her cooking. They were eating really well. Star was proof of that. It made no sense to me why they would, you know, why they kept, why Janet had this constant quest for money. I think those were the, I think those were, were sort of the explosive issues is to find out what was behind this. And when all is said and done, this was about money. This was about, you know, it was interesting too, because Chris Tucker had, had told me, but it didn't come out during the trial, had actually told me that one day Gavin was looking around his house up in Tarzana, California, not far from me, although my house is nothing like Chris Tucker's. Gavin was looking around in Chris's house and he said, why do you need all this crap? Why don't you give me some of it? <laughs> and, and again, you know, until this all came down, Chris kind of passed it off. He didn't think anything of it. He didn't think anything of it. So, you know, but, but that was their mindset. They just wanted more. They just wanted something. And it was all about money and they were setting the whole thing up. And having lost the case, I guess they just walked away from the civil suit because the kid never filed anything he had till his 19th birthday. And he never filed a civil suit. I don't think it would have gotten him very far. But, uh, yeah, these, these people were all about what they could get for themselves. That's what the, that's what the welfare fraud was about. That's what the J.C. Penney's lawsuit was about. I mean, it was all about how much money can we accumulate. So, and what Janet did with it is a mystery to me. What did you think of the evidence, I guess, loose term, presented by the prosecution side? <laughs> Very little. There wasn't any. It was anecdotal. All of their evidence was uh, the 1108, um, nonsensical, disgruntled employees that were coming in and saying the stupidest things imaginable. I saw Michael doing this to... to Macaulay Culkin. Okay, fine. But then Macaulay Culkin comes in and says, no, he didn't. Didn't happen. You know, so how do you, why didn't they interview Macaulay Culkin before they, before they put that woman, what's her name on the stand? All of these people had an ax to grind with Michael. All of these people got fired. All of these people sued him. All of these people lost. Michael was holding judgments against all of them. How are those people all of a sudden credible witnesses? And again, all of their evidence, they didn't have any evidence. It was just anecdotal nonsense. And then the problem they had, too, is when the judge enters, you know, enters a jury instruction that says, even if you believe all of those other things happened, you can't just assume because those things happened that this happened. And the minute you tell the jurors that, they're like, OK, great, then we don't have to even consider it. And they didn't. And they didn't. But when you have when you say somebody did something to Wade Robson and Robson comes in, and says it didn't happen. And Brett Barnes comes in and says it didn't happen. And Macaulay Culkin comes in, and says it didn't happen. You know, Jardy Chandler was nowhere to be found because that didn't happen. And he didn't want to get involved. They could have tracked him down. He wasn't going to get involved. He wasn't going to come in and lie. His mother, his, his father, his uncle. Do you know that his uncle wrote a book? Have you guys seen the book that his uncle wrote? Yes, absolutely. Yep. 
What name does he use on that on that uh, on that book? Um, Ray Chandler. I'll help you. Raymond Chandler. Yep. Not not the real Raymond Chandler, but Raymond Chandler. Well, let me ask you a question. How does his name get to be Raymond Chandler when he's when he's Jordy Chandler's mother's brother? Hmm. He changed hmm. his name to Chandler so everybody would make the nexus. That's not his name. Aphrodite Jones is Diane Brown. Everybody wants to find some hook or something to 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 put their name out there so that somebody can somebody can find something about them. Again, it's all about money. Everybody everybody involved in this, it's just money grubbing, money hungry and I don't get it. So, you know, my wife and 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 our life is just not not that way, you know. So, whatever. That's fine. But yeah, it's mind-boggling that these people look at these things and pay no attention to that. In the book, somewhere in the book, I've been told he he tells everybody that his sister was the mother. If his sister's the mother, how did he get the name Chandler? You know? Correct me if I'm wrong. Don't mothers have maiden names? Wouldn't the brother's name be the same as the mother's name if they're brother and sister? Or did they did Chandler happen to marry a Chandler? Yeah, I don't think so. Anyway. Uh, the did, whole thing is so annoying. I mean – it's just annoying. It's 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 just people who just what, you know. It was it no. I guess it was Paula Abdul. You know what have you done for me lately? What can I get from you? What do you have for me? Kind of nonsense. That was actually Janet Jackson. Oh, what? <laughs> Michael's sister. Michael's Jackson. sister. What have you done for me lately? And that's Janet Arvizo's new name. She married somebody named yeah, Joe. Yeah, that was quite yeah. ironic. I think Tom was trying to derail any attention to any more of the 1108, you know, the allegations, the nonsense allegations. He was he was just trying to put that to move that away from, uh, you know, get that out of the lime, get that out of the limelight and bring more to attention. Janet's nonsense and her hijinks and her, you know, fake arrests or well, not arrests, but, you know, fake lawsuits and fake claims and, you know, expose her for the, the person that she was. You know, again, what was also very disturbing, two of the jurors, the two older jurors, male and female, I forget their names, Raymond Hume, I think was one of them. He uh, tried to write a book. Yeah. He didn't he, he didn't decide to come back and say, oh, no, Michael's a molester, because nobody wants to write a book about somebody who didn't commit a crime. Yeah, and the older about, lady as well. Right. Um, how, do you write a, how do you write a book about something you didn't do? You want to you want to read a story about what I didn't have for breakfast? So, you know, these people, again, when they realize, wait a minute, there's no money. Nobody's going to buy my story if I don't convict the guy. Um, and for them to change their minds and then go public with it and try and say that they've changed their mind, that's, that's just reprehensible. That's the hell is wrong with people. Well, what was um, what was silly about that as well was that the the lady who came out and changed her mind was so vocal in the um, the public interview after the trial, and she was actually very prominent in saying all the reasons why she didn't believe the Arvizo. She didn't seem like somebody who was being um, she was, harassed she was, into changing her verdict. She was the woman who came out and, don't snap your fingers at me, honey. Yeah, yeah that was her. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. I remember that. Jeez. Eleanor Cook. I don't know her name. I don't know her name. By the way, at the beginning, didn't you say 13 counts? There were only 10 counts. There were there were 10 counts with four lesser alternatives. Oh, there were? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. There, were, there were four counts of um, 
providing alcohol to a minor with intent to ply them for molestation. Oh. And then there was a, a lesser alternative count on each one of those of simply supplying alcohol to a minor. Hmm. Okay. Take your word for it. I don't remember. Sorry. <laughs> Scott, what it, did... It, Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it, it's been what? It's, it's been 11 years and probably 700 cases later for me. So, sorry. That's okay. What, think Because it was so long ago, if you remember, what did you observe in the way of a support network around Michael during the time of the trial? You mean who are the family members that pushed me out of the way? Sure. Well, <laughs> whatever you remember seeing or like – do you think Michael did have support around him? Just whatever you remember and would you know, like to share. He had, he had you know, obviously his, his mom, you know, she was spectacular. Uh, his father, you know, he was there, but I didn't have a lot of interaction with the family. But I have to tell you this much, and again, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. I know that we had a serious cash flow issue. I know that I put 52,000, yes, 52,000 on my credit card, moving people all over the country. Um, I shouldn't have to have done that. And Janet, who was there periodically, I don't know about the family situation, the financial situation of other brothers and sisters, none of my business. But Janet, who was there, I'm pretty sure could have afforded it. And the bottom line is $150,000 would have taken away all of the nonsense and all of the stress and everything that we were having to go through. And it, it wasn't there. So again, I don't think Janet Jackson would have even felt a check for $150,000. And I get that that's a really lot of money, but in the scheme of things and in the big picture, it's not. And this was about her brother. And yet, I don't know if she had put out money previously. Maybe she did. I have no clue. But, you know, we were running very, very short on money the last uh, several months. And I'm not talking about my paycheck. I'm talking about the fact that 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 my wife ultimately ended up putting close to you know, about $52,000 on our credit cards to buy airplane tickets from Australia and in car rentals and people from New York and, you know, whatever. That was all money that we had paid for out of our pocket and then got reimbursed later on, much later on. I shouldn't have to do that. And again, I did it because it needed to be done. And I'm not looking for any, you know, brownie points for it. But the short version is that it seems to me that the family could have found a couple extra dollars so that that didn't become a daily conversation, trying to find the money. I, I can't tell you how many times we would show up at the condo after trial and there'd be a three-day notice to quit on it, on the door. Um, so there was, there was, may have been emotional support from the family. There wasn't a lot of financial support that I'm aware of. And I could be wrong. I, I just want to announce that I could be totally, totally, totally off base. I don't know who was writing the checks. I don't know who was funding it. Wasn't my question. Wasn't my issue. But again, it just seems to me that, that it wasn't that much money in the scope, in the big picture, in the, you know, in, and, uh, um, I just don't really understand why we're having the financial issues that we had. So whatever. But as far as his support system, there were siblings there periodically. I, I don't really know their names. I know Randy was there, I think, a lot. Uh, his, uh, I don't know if it's his wife or his girlfriend was there. Janet was there a couple days, not not a lot. And uh, that's the other one. I think Jermaine is his name. He was there for several days. But that was about it. You want to hear a really funny story about Oxman? <laughs> <laughs> Always. 
So we had these condos, right? We had five condos. Well, one one was basically the war room. It was the office. It had all the notebooks. It was all set up. We had the copiers in there. Everybody was working in there. That was that was one. Um, Susan had these three paralegals, these three girls that were there. They had one condo. The three of them shared a condo. So they had one. They were the ones that were putting the notebooks together at Susan's direction. Copy this, make that, do this, do that. They had, the war room was the second condo. The third condo was Susan's. The fourth was Tom's. The fifth was mine. Well, the reason I had the fifth is because Oxman, that, that fifth one was supposed to be for Oxman. Now, I don't know where they expected me to stay or they maybe didn't. I don't know what the case was. But <clears throat> Oxman told Tom, he said, you know, give Scott that one because I'm going to stay up at Neverland. So Oxman shows up at the gate at Neverland and, you know, they called Joe Marcus, who is the uh, manager. And Joe, of course, calls Michael and Michael says, he's not staying here. <laughs> so, Awkward. so, so, right. So, you know, they go to the guy. He never got through the gate. He goes, they go back to the gate and they said, you know, you're, you're not staying here. So Oxman has to go and he calls Tom and, and, and I'll never forget the conversation. And he says to Tom, he says, hey, you want to share a condo with Oxman? And I said, do you? And he said, I'll call you back. <laughs> um, and, and that was how Oxman <laughs> ended up staying in the hotel. <laughs> and that's why Oxman was at the hotel. And that's why he was screaming bloody murder and pitching a fit about not having a place to stay. If you go back and listen to the thing, it's apparently they think that I don't need a place to stay, something like that, because I was in the condo that Oxman had. And so at some point, Tom called me and said, listen, you know, you got to give up the condo um, or room with Oxman. I said, well, you know, that's not going to happen. I said, okay, fine. I said, so what should I do? He said, I don't know. I said, well, I'll tell you what. And this was, I'll never forget this. This was on a Tuesday. Couldn't tell you the date, but it was a Tuesday in the week. And so I told Tom, I said, all right, well, I guess I'm going home. And he said, well, just go home and I'll call you. So that was Tuesday. Um, Wednesday night, and Tom usually goes to sleep around 7. Wednesday, I should say Thursday morning, about 1 o'clock in the morning, Tom says, what time can you be back up here? I said, where am I supposed to stay? He goes, you can have the condo. What time can you get back up here? So I went back up that morning, and like I said, that's when I I called Tom, and I said, what do you want me to do with Oxman's uh, makeup? So, and that was, that was the same time that, that Oxman, that was just before I left the condo, just before Oxman's rant about, you know, I can have him fired and I don't have a place to stay and, and, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. And all of these, again, now we're back to these reporters, these experts. I'm sitting there every day, every day I'm sitting there. Everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, but, but people who are there are fully aware that I live in Los Angeles, right? Who the hell else could Oxman be talking about? He can't fire Tom. The trial is going on. He says, I'm going to fire him. Who, who could he possibly be talking about? And I hear all of these idiot reporters, primarily Diane Diamond and, Barbara and, and Diane Brown or Aphrodite, whatever the schmuck she's calling herself, talking about they're trying to, fi- they're trying to fire Tom. Like I, I'm totally non-existent. That, that whole recording about getting rid of him and firing somebody, that was about me. He wanted me out of the condo. He wanted me fired. Or to be at Neverland. Well, he wanted to be at Neverland, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, they, they, he went to the gate and they said, yeah, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> I'm sorry I missed that episode. That would have been fun to be at the I, – I would like to have been the security guard at the gate that got to say that to him. <laughs> anyway, Oxman. What a putz. 
What did you observe, Scott, um, about Michael's uh, health as the trial progressed? Because from the outside, he did appear to deteriorate quite significantly. Yeah, they would have lunch brought in. You know, they had that little room up on the second floor that uh, they were able to use. And and I know, and I forget the name of the security guy. I think his name was Bashir. He used to bring up lunch pretty much every day. And um, every now and then I would walk by. They Sometimes the door was open, sometimes it wasn't. But Michael was not eating. And, and again, I get it. You know, I mean, you're being accused of something you just simply didn't do. Nobody believes your story. You're being prosecuted by by crazy people. And I guess he just, he just stopped eating. Yeah. He would move very slowly. You could see the video. And again, it's not like I knew him well enough to say he would run from place to place, but clearly this is somebody with unlimited energy for him to be able to perform the way he does. But yes, he was moving very slowly. And, and I saw a couple times where he seemed to be a little off balance. You know, he, it's not like somebody who would get up and sit there and have a cup of coffee in the morning, but he wasn't falling asleep. He was certainly paying very, very close attention you know, you got to respect that. I mean, he was, I shouldn't say he was paying close attention because I don't know, but he was coherent. He seemed to be, like I said, writing these notes, whatever they were. But uh, yeah, he was, you know, but you could see him getting thinner. You could see him deteriorating. You could see his his uh, walk slowing down. And interestingly, too, a lot of that was protected, I'm sure, by his mom, because again, because of her age and he would walk, you know, arm in arm with his mom, they would walk slowly because it sort of looked like he was just escorting his mom. And I really believe that his mom was holding him up most of the time. I think she was the one that was escorting Michael, um, although it appeared to be completely different. And again, I I attribute that to Catherine's intelligence, you know, this way people weren't making comments. So, but yeah, he was, he was not eating very much. And if he was at all during the day, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty hard to watch. You know, you're watching somebody literally deteriorate before your eyes for, Again, for for some lunatic's ego, and I'm talking about Snedden. And did he appear to you to be medicated at all? Nope. Nope. Okay. Well, pajama day, um, which I probably shouldn't make a joke out of, but um, I didn't know how else to refer it. We called it pajama day. But no, actually, no. I didn't see any signs of of medication or, you know, again, no. We, we made a few mentions of well, so-called pajama tay in, in this uh, discussion today. And just for listeners that may be uh, new fans who don't know a lot about the, the actual trial or the story behind Pajama Day, did anyone, anyone want to sort of volunteer what that was about and actually clear that up for people that are not sure? Well, Michael had a back injury. This is what I know of it, and this, that's all I can attest to. Michael had a back injury and uh, uh, was taking some pain medications, I guess, for that. And um, like anything, and and I've had back surgery. So sometimes the medication doesn't really work depending on the aggravation of the situation at the time. And uh, he went to the uh, emergency hospital in uh, Santa Maria. And the doctor, um, I guess, Medicate. I don't want to say over. I don't think he over, but he medicated Michael for the situation and he didn't show up uh, in court and the judge was threatening to get a warrant for his arrest and have the sheriffs go look for him. And at that point, the judge, the judge uh, would have put him in custody uh, for the balance of the trial because now in the judge's mind, he's a flight risk. 
So um, because he had gone straight from Neverland to the hospital, when he came back to the court, Tom, uh, Susan, I think, was able to, to reach him by cell phone. When they brought him back to the court, because he had gone straight from home, he was actually still in his pajamas. He was wearing, you know, pants that appeared to be like pajama type pants. And he ended up, instead of being able to get dressed to avoid being arrested and having his bail revoked, um, he showed up in court that day wearing pajamas. It's pretty sad. Thank you for that. Oh, yeah. Did I get it right? Yeah, pretty much. He, uh, I believe he'd fallen that early that morning and, and hurt his back further. He had had oh. a back injury from earlier. And uh, it was because of, I think, that recent fall that they made that quick trip to the hospital. That I didn't know. I just thought it was a back injury. I knew he had a back injury. I thought it was just a back injury that had, uh, that had sort of popped up. I didn't know that he had fallen earlier. Uh, again, that, that's not the kind of thing that I was dealing with. My, mm. my whole thing while the trial was going on, I was in constant communication with my wife, Lisa, and uh, making sure that, that the witnesses were going to be there. Scott, what did it feel like for you uh, and the team when the verdicts came in? I was home. Um, <laughs> I can tell you exactly. Um, again, I left when, when the, when the prosecution, when the defense rested, when Tom rested and the prosecution announced, I think that they had no sir rebuttal. They had no rebuttal at all. We had no sir rebuttal. Um, uh, that was done. And as soon as they said that they were doing closing arguments the next day, I went into Tom and Susan and I said, good luck, Godspeed. And Tom said, you leaving? And I said, yeah, why? What do I need to stick around for? I'm done. I've got... I've got things I need to go take care of. I've got a wife I need to go hang out with and my dog and my cats. And, you know, I'm done. I'm out of here. There's no reason for me to be here anymore. <clears throat> so I can even tell you that was, I think, May 27th. I mean, that's I didn't stick around for deliberations. I didn't stick around for, for closing arguments. I, I just I bailed. Um, so my wife and I were were standing in our bedroom probably eight inches from the television, you know, watching the verdicts come through. And yeah, I mean, I got very emotional over it. You know, I was happy for Michael is really what it boiled down to. I mean, I didn't see it as a success for me. I was just happy for Michael or for Tom. Um, it wasn't about us. It was about Michael. And it was about winning the trial for Michael and proving that that he just didn't do what these morons said he did. And, and I enjoyed sticking it back to him, you know. But it didn't, there are no winners didn't do anything. This kid, God knows what this kid is doing today. And frankly, I don't care. Michael never recovered from it. Um, I know he tried, you know, that's, that's what going back on tour was all about. He was trying to recover, um, you know, and, and people think that because he had money or because, you know, celebrities don't get, I actually had, who was, yeah, it was Diane Diamond. Talk about stupid. Diane Diamond said to me one time when we were talking, she said, celebrities don't get convicted. I said, really, go tell uh, Winona Ryder and Martha Stewart celebrities don't get convicted. What the hell kind of stupid statement is that? <laughs> but these are the kinds of things that these idiot reporters come up with. And, and I just don't get it. But that's that's how it ended for us. My wife and I watched it um, side by side. I think we were holding hands, you know, just watching it on TV. And it was very emotional for us, but not because of our involvement. It was emotional because um, you know, we're just happy to see Michael exonerated finally. And then thinking in the back of my mind, it doesn't mean that the civil case is going away. You know, it's like OJ or it's like uh, uh, Blake. You know, just because the criminal's over doesn't mean it's over. So, um, 
I think that yeah. feeling you had with your wife um, of wanting to see Michael exonerated was a feeling that was really echoed all around the world in the fan community. Uh, Sheriff's Department has put plans into place to fly a helicopter in. Wait, Wendy, I'm sorry, we have to interrupt you. We're hearing audio now from the courthouse. Let's let's listen into the courthouse. Barbara, Santa Maria Division, the people of the state of California, plaintiff versus Michael Joe Jackson, defendant, case number one one three three six zero three, count one verdict. We, the jury in the above entitled case, find the defendant not guilty of conspiracy, as charged in count one of the indictment. Dated June 13th, 2005, four person number 80. Count two, verdict. We the jury. Did anyway. the MJ case have any impact on your life and career after your role was finished? <laughs> uh, yeah, huge. Yeah, it did. Huge. And, and not, in a, not in a good way, not in a bad way. You know, because of the way it worked out, I think I think I was on it for what ten or eleven months. I don't specifically remember. I remember Tom called me to tell me he was hiring me on my birthday. I remember that. So that was, I think it was my birthday, my wife's. Anyway, because I was on it for about I think about ten months, I had no other work. So when when everything ended, I was literally standing there unemployed. You know, typically I have several cases right now, besides the one, the, the murder that, that Tom and I had dismissed. I have probably about nine or 10 cases, I think five of which are homicides. You know, so I always have something that I can go do, but, but because this was such a full-time job, when people would call me and say, hey, can you help me on this? I would say no, you know, and they would go somewhere else because I, I wasn't gonna divert my attention from this. This was definitely a full-time job. So yeah, so after everything was all said and done, I remember I remember looking at my wife saying, "So now what do we do?" And uh, a couple of days after that, probably about a week later, actually my wife's suggestion was, Let, "Let's do nothing for a while. That's fine." And uh, so uh, Mark called and said that he was no longer working with Brad Miller, and if I could come by his office and take a look at some files. And when I went there, he had a stack of about thirty files uh, on the table. And I, I sort of made an off-the-cuff joke. I said it'd be cheaper to hire me. And he said, okay. <laughs> um, and then I, that's, that's how I started working with Mark. And that went on for six years. So, yeah. That's what I did after. So it did have an impact in the sense that, that I didn't have anything going on. I was, I was not working. A well-earned break. Um. Yeah, you know, I can't take a break from my bills. And I, like I said, we had put out a lot of money out of our pocket. So it was not a fun time. And, um, um, but I was getting a couple phone calls to do some interviews. So that was, that was kind of entertaining. I did the interviews. I used that time to do the interviews and, um, and just sort of hang out around the house. Yeah, that was kind of nice. But, um, yeah, that's how I started working. That's actually how I started working for Garagos when when Mark called, and that was in that was uh, mid to late June, and the verdict came back when on the thirteenth. Yes. Yep. Yeah, my wife's birthday is the seventeenth, so I think we probably did something for her birthday, and then I went and met with Mark shortly thereafter, like twenty twenty one, something like that, and and that's how I came to work for Mark, and I was there for. Uh, Actually, for six years till till the fourth of July of two thousand, I don't know, twenty eleven. I guess it was. Yeah. So yeah. So how long was it before you got paid for the Jackson case? 
I got paid relatively quickly, but by accident. Funny story. Because we had put out all this money. Susan had money put aside for some experts that early on we thought we might need these experts. We had, when they talked about Michael's library, which, my gosh, if, if you ever got a chance to see the library Michael had at his house, it was it was just absolutely amazing. First editions like you can't imagine. I mean, just just Charles Dickens everywhere. It was spectacular. So we had some money put aside for a potential expert on libraries to establish that um, there were more things in Michael's house than a couple of nudie magazines. And uh, ultimately, again, when when Tom started to uh, harness the focus of where he wanted it to go, that uh, that sort of went by the wayside. So we used that money eventually to pay off the um, to pay the credit cards, to pay all the travel expenses. And Susan, in her in her moment of what would you call it, um, generosity, you know knew that I wasn't getting paid, knew that people weren't getting paid. And so Susan uh, ultimately paid me for two months. They were sort of, it seemed like they were keeping everybody on a 90 day, uh, on a 90 day, um, what would you call it? Help me with the word here. Like a contract? They they, they were, they were back, they were behind 90 days on everybody. Oh, okay. Oh, in arrears. In arrears, thank you. 90 days in arrears. In arrears. So what happened was um, May 1st, I would theoretically have been paid for March, for March, okay? Um, so what happened was on May, when I left May 27th, on, on around June 1st, number one, they didn't know I had left because nobody cared. So around June 1st, Susan gave me a check to pay at that point, the balance of the credit cards was about $20,000. So Susan paid me for the credit cards. She paid me for the month of April because I had been paid for March. She paid me for the month of April. So they still owed me for the month of May. Well, unaware that I had been paid for the month of April by Susan, unaware that the credit cards had been paid by Susan and um, the accountants, uh, Whitman, Bernstein, and Fox, sent me a check for what they thought was the month of April and June 1st, I'm sorry, not 90 days, 60 days. So they, so what was supposed to be June 1st, they were basically paying me for April, unaware that I had been paid. So when I got the check, you know, I, I took it straight to the bank and I deposited it. And I got a call from them June 7th, 8th, just, just right before the verdicts. And they said, we're going to need you to return that money. And I said, hold your breath, you know, yeah, that's not going to happen. And, uh, yeah, they, they actually really, with a straight face, thought that I was going to give them the, the money back for the last month because I know I was never going to get paid. You know, once a case is over, come hell or high water, win, lose, or draw, you don't get paid. The clients clients walk away. Number one, if they lose and they go to prison, you're never going to see a dime. And if they win, it's over. They can't be they can't be recharged. So, you know, it's double jeopardy. So, yeah, you just don't get paid after the fact. I've never been paid after the fact. Um so yeah, I got paid sort of uh, sort of by accident, but they were keeping everybody. And again, I, I when I say everybody, I can't say Susan or I don't know what the attorneys. I just know for me, they were keeping me sixty months or six months, sixty days, two months in arrears. Sorry, there's a helicopter going over LAPD. That's okay. We had a whippersnipper going on last week. Uh, who? <laughs> oh. 
Jamin. It's a weed whacker. A weed whacker. Sorry. In our last episode, oh, we had a from a neighbour whippersnapper. <laughs> It's an Australian term. Would teach My, you something today, Scott. You know, I had I had family that used to live in Perth, and and they used to come up with the silliest. My my cousin used to use the term mod cons. I finally figured out what that was. I guess that means modern conveniences. All the mod cons. Yes. Yep. <laughs> she passed away. I miss her dearly. But anyway. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I kind of got paid accidentally, and again, mostly by Susan's. Thank God, by Susan's good graces. So, Scott, we've got a question here for you. It's a question we ask pretty much every guest we have on the show. That, um, like a special guest, I should say. And the question is, how do you think Michael should be remembered? Oh my gosh, as. Uh, Right there with Elvis, you know, it's just an incredible talent that changed the world and and helped a lot of people in a lot of bad times. And, uh, you know, the, the work that he did for kids and, you know, I remember I I, um, I did some work and I've been fortunate enough to do some work with uh, Lionel Richie and his family. And, uh, you know, I know the I know the that Michael putting together, you know, we are the world and, and the money that he raised for kids. That's how he needs to be remembered. You know, not not any of this. This is all nonsense. You know, I I get that I was a part of it. And, and I again, I think the world of Tom and Susan, but this was all nonsense. And I would hope that nobody ever remembers this crap, you know, because that's all it is to me. This is just nonsense. So. Who knows if that'll be the case? I hope it is. But, uh, you know, he was, I didn't know him as a parent, but I know that he was very protective of his kids when we were there and when the kids were at the house and they were around, you know, we, we sort of stayed in a different area when we were there. Um, you know, he didn't want his kids to have anything to do with it. And I, I know that Michael was there when Tom and I went through Paris's bedroom and into that, what they called the secret room where she kept her videotapes. Yeah, big secret room. Paris kept her videotapes in this room. You know, and I know that Michael was very uncomfortable with Tom and me being in Paris's bedroom. I get it. And that's how he needs to be remembered as an amazing parent and as an amazing talent who, who gave up a, an awful lot of himself to help people. Not th- this, this is a very, very small, worthless fragment of his life that should, shouldn't be remembered. In fact, I'm sorry that it is remembered. I'm sorry that it's, <clears throat> I, I get the celebration of it, but in the same respect, it really needs to go away. Celebration. Yeah. Some people might, we try definitely not to celebrate it. It's a more education tool to remind people okay, fair of enough. what happened because the price was very large. You know what I would, what I would say to people out there is, Use this opportunity if you ever get called for jury duty to go on there and recognize that law enforcement has an agenda and and stop. You know, we always make a joke about people not smart enough to get off jury duty. But I think people really need to take that seriously and go in there and recognize that law enforcement doesn't always tell the truth and law enforcement has an agenda. Um, Tom Snedden had an agenda. He was going to get Michael if it killed him. And unfortunately, Michael died first. But the bottom line is is if if we walk away from this with anything it's that people really need to go in there and they really need to to not try and get off of jury duty they really need to go in there and listen to the facts 
and realize that that just because somebody's a police officer or law enforcement agent of some sort, it doesn't mean that they only tell the truth. That's utter nonsense. You know, that's just utter nonsense. And that's what I would say to people if you're going to walk away with this and learn anything from Michael's uh, uh, ordeal, because I don't know how else to describe it, is that you can't shirk your duties and uh, and jury duty and things of that nature, your civic responsibility, so that somebody else doesn't have to go through this. What are you working on at the moment? Um, I have a death penalty case in Northern California. I've got like five homicides right now, you know, just I'm not working on anything with any notoriety. Tom and I had uh, been working for Suge Knight and in typical Tom fashion, you know, Suge is uh, he's very disrespectful toward women. And there's a uh, there's a young attorney named uh, Sharon Applebaum. She's a former prosecutor in New York. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. She she's the new Susan, if you will. Um and uh, Suge was very, very disrespectful to her for whatever reason. I don't know what his issues are. And and being the typical trooper, she sat there and took it. And Tom just said, yeah, you know, you, you can't talk. To, I mean, I don't take it from him. You know, Suge Knight doesn't, he doesn't intimidate me. But but he was going after Sharon and Tom, you know, among other reasons. But but primarily Tom just said, yeah, you, you know, we're done. We're not going to deal with this nonsense anymore. So, um uh, we walked away from that. And again, I work with the attorneys. I don't necessarily work with the clients. So, you know, if, if Tom leaves, I leave. It, it, it's not like I, you know, nobody was fired. Tom just said, we're done. You know, you can't talk to Sharon like that. You can't talk to me like that. You know, me being Tom. Um, but Tom can take care of himself. He doesn't, you know. Um, but again, that's just typical. <laughs> that's just typical Tom, Tom Mesereau to the rescue. You know, it's just he's an amazing person. And, and yet I still out-talked him. And you're still in close uh, <laughs> contact with Tom and Susan now? Oh, yeah. Well, Susan, not so much um, because I don't really do civil and Susan doesn't really do criminal. So um, uh, I don't really – there's no issues. I just don't really see Susan because I don't do civil. So yeah, there isn't <clears throat> there isn't really anything that I could really help her with, although I certainly would if she asked. But I stay in touch with Tom. I'm still working with Tom quite closely on several cases simply because that's what I do. I do criminal stuff and Tom doesn't do civil. Susan, you know, when they separated, Susan took the civil, Tom took the criminal. So, Scott, as you um, as you look back over your career, is there something that you could pick out as your greatest success or achievement? Yes. <laughs> My finest hour. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I'm very proud of my finest hour. <clears throat> and fortunately, there's a court record of the entire thing. But as I was telling you before, the Rampart, uh, LAPD Rampart case, do you really want to hear the story? Love to. Yeah. Okay. So we're in trial. It's the LAPD Rampart case. There are four officers that have been charged. <clears throat> and again, similar to Michael's case, we probably had about 200,000 documents. And um, we're in the process, we're, we're in trial, and our client, a, a former officer named Mike Buchanan, um, is on the stand. Even though there are four, four, four officers and I was working for all four of them, we actually, I was brought in initially by Harlan Braun to represent Mike Buchanan. <clears throat> and Mike is on the stand, he's testifying. And the, the prosecutor, the DA at the time, 
um, pulls out a piece of paper and she starts to talk about this piece of paper. And it's a it's an evaluation sheet. It's it's one officer writing up an evaluation of how their opinion of how another officer did in the line of duty. And she starts reading this evaluation sheet about Buchanan. And I, I leaned over to Harlan and I said, we never got that. And he looked at me like I was completely insane. We had over 200,000 documents. And I said, we never got that. And one of the other attorneys, Barry Levin, who's who's now passed away, Barry turned around and he said, Scott, do you, do you have that document? I said, we never got it. And the other attorney um, turned to me, this, this Joel Isaacson turned to me and said, do you have it? And I said, why is nobody listening to me? I'm not speaking English. Or I, I said, I'm only speaking English. I don't speak any other language. And I am literally talking out loud in the courtroom saying that. I said, I only speak English. Why is nobody paying attention to me? And the fourth attorney turned around, Paul De Pasquale, turned around and he asked me for it. And I put my hands over my mouth like in a cone. And I, I like yelled, we never got it. So Judge Connor, Jackie Connor, again, whom I've known for many, many years, Judge Connor stops the proceeding. Uh, De Pasquale jumps up and says, Your Honor, can we get the bait stamp number on that document? And the DA starts flipping this one document. She turns it forward, turns it back, turns it forward. And the judge says to the DA, her name was Ann Ingalls, says, Miss Ingalls, the number's not going to magically appear, and Mr. Ross doesn't think that you ever produced it. You either have a number or you don't. And the DA said, well, Your Honor, and the judge put up her hands and said, stop, and said to the jurors, excuse me, could I get all of you to go back into the jury room? And I just sat back like the, what's it, the, the, the cat that ate the bird, or what's that uh, dopey saying? You know, and again, everybody was looking at me like I was an idiot out of 200 plus thousand documents. How could I say with one piece of paper that we never got it? But I would have remembered that particular document. We never got it. And we never got it, plain and simple. Yeah, it was my favorite moment of all times. And it was, wow. again, the media was, and, and I literally, I, again, I put my hands in, you know, I cupped my hands over my mouth and I yelled, we never got it. Because nobody would listen to me. Nobody was paying any attention to me. And I can't, I'm not an attorney, so I can't jump up and say, you know, objection. You know, can I get the bait stamp off that document before you introduce it? We never got it. The jury came back out. The judge said that the DA just tried to pull what we call a stunt, and she isn't going to be doing that ever again. <laughs> yeah, that that to this day, that was, I don't know, 1999, maybe to that. That to this day has been, was my absolute favorite moment of all times. So that was my, that was my biggie. That, I'll never forget that day. I relive that. Whenever I'm depressed, I relive that day like it was an hour ago. Yep. I was very proud of that. <laughs> and I'm telling you, Harlan looked at me like I was a complete idiot. He looked at me like I was Brian Oxman. Oh, I'm not <laughs> before, before we finish, yeah. I, need to, I need to explain that I'm asserting all of my First Amendment privileges. All of these prior comments that were made, snide or otherwise, were strictly my personal opinion. Anyway. He's welcome to sue me. I don't care. <laughs> I'd win that one too. <laughs> I think he's got his own podcast now, like his own show that he's doing lately. Yeah, good for him. Good. What's he What's he talking about? I don't know. I haven't I'll listened post. to it. I've just had makeup seen it on Twitter and stuff. Make. <laughs> he's so yeah, really. He's so focused on who Who is that? Who's that writer? Maureen Orth. Orth. He's he's so focused on. That's all he talks about ever. That's all he ever talked about. You know, I, I guess she said Michael's nose was going to fall off, and and that's the only thing he can talk about. Whatever. 
just a reminder, he has been disbarred. Yes, he has. And 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 if you want to look it up, be aware that his real first name is Ricky and not Brian, because it's very hard to find if you try and look up Brian. Did you know that? <laughs> What's with everyone always changing their names? Yeah, we've learned a lot of real names on this episode. I don't know. My name is Scott first. It's not my, it's my first. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know why people change. But yes, his real name is Ricky Brian Oxman. If you want to look up the disbarment on the California bar website, it's all there. Feel free. You can read anything you want. I think his wife was disbarred also, wasn't she? And I forget her name. But she was smart. She didn't go by Oxman. <laughs> she used another name. So. Well, um, on that note, <laughs> on that on that bombshell, mm. um, we're going to... many. <laughs> we're going to thank you very much, Scott, for joining us on the show today. It's been a long recording and... Yeah, You've I been very gracious and very generous, and um, thank you for putting up with us, and it's been a real pleasure. I think you have that backwards, but thank you for tolerating me. <laughs> but the other thing, too, the offer remains that, that if anybody has any follow-up questions, feel free. I'm happy to answer anything I can. It's very generous. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, we, we really greatly appreciate it. We hope listeners have learned a lot today uh, and to, to know what was really going on with all the nonsense and how obvious that was and, and really the hard work that you and the team put in. We really appreciate that as well. So thank you. And I, and I just, and I just want to say for Tom, you know, again, thank God for Susan because Susan really protected Tom from a lot of the nonsense. He needed to remain focused. He remained focused. Um, he needed to concentrate. He concentrated. And a lot of that had to do with Susan running interference with the idiots and the nonsense that was going on in the background. And and that's the bottom line. So again, God bless Susan. I, I'm sorry she doesn't get the credit that she should be getting. You know, it's it's like any other nonsensical soap opera that you know there's always crap going on in the back, and Susan was doing everything she could to keep it away from Tom, and she did an amazing job. So, well, I think that's a uh, a wrap for episode 33. I just want to say thank you again um, from the bottom of our hearts. Scott for taking the time to come on the MJ cast. Uh, it's been a very, sure, it's been a, a very educational experience um, mm. for 2016's Vindication Day. It's not a day we uh, we celebrate in any sense, but it's a day we remember what Michael went through and fought. So thank you again for coming on the show. And hopefully people will use that to understand why they need to go on jury duty and help people who don't have the advantages that Michael had, didn't, that they don't have the team that Michael had that was willing to give up everything to protect him, the Toms and the Susans of the world.
Hey, this is Taj Jackson of 3T, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Listeners, thank you for tuning into this episode 33, Vindication Day special episode. If you'd like to go back in here, last year's 10th anniversary of Vindication Day episode, that would be episode number 10, and you will find links for that in our show notes or directly on iTunes or your listening device. You can find us online at themjcast.com. We are across Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all as The MJ Cast. We're over at Tumblr, themjcast.tumblr.com. YouTube, you can search for The MJ Cast and email us directly, themjcast at icloud.com. We love hearing from you. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's show and anything that you would like to share with us. So please drop us a line. Also, we would like to say thank you to Charles. Charles Thompson, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. You helped us so much in putting this entire thing together and from both of us, we really appreciate your help. You're very welcome. Thank you, Charles. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. You can find Charles over at Charles Thompson, which is charles-thompson, T-H-O-M-S-O-N.net. Charles is on Twitter as at C-E Thompson. And of course, Thompson is without the P, T-H-O-M-S-O-N. So thank you very much. And we really appreciate everything for this show, Charles. You're, You're very welcome. And it's no problem at all. And of course, listeners, we'd like to draw your attention to uh, one of the most famous articles that Charles Thompson wrote. It was uh, published in the Huffington Post. The article was called One of the Most Shameful Episodes in Journalistic History. And it is an incredible piece that received a lot of deserved attention. So head to our show notes at themjcast.com where you will be able to scroll down and read that incredible article from Charles. Listeners, have a great fortnight ahead. Thank you for listening to the MJ Cast and keep Michaeling. Would you mind, Scott, telling us a little bit about um, Neverland Valley Ranch? What did you think of uh, the the property and uh, what was your time like there? Oh, I loved going there. <clears throat> Never, the, the Neverland Ranch actually was not, surprisingly, it was not built by Michael. It was actually built by a developer. It was called the Sycamore Ranch. I don't know if you knew that or not. Um, the house was was spectacular, and, and the beautiful part of it was the seclusion that it was on, if I remember correctly, it was 2,700 acres, um, an incredible amount of property. And you, it's like you could stand, there was a pond right in front of the house that, that was, it, it was such a nice 
calm, serene place to be. I could really see why Michael and the rest of the family enjoyed it, anybody going there. But you could stand at the pond and look to your look to your left. I, I'm bad with directions. And you could see Mount Catherine. There was a mountain that Michael actually owned. It was part of the 2,700 acres that he had named after his mother. And, um, you know, the... I used to love to go into the theater. Michael had a theater in there that was, um, how would you describe it? <clears throat> he had built the theater. The theater was was not there. He had built it. And it was amazing because there were these little rooms that had beds in them. And, and the purpose of the beds were for kids that, that were bedridden. They couldn't get out. So they, they could come in and they could join the other kids. And they, they had glass that would open. And if they needed medical attention, the, the glass doors would shut. But they could sit there and they could watch a movie and still be with the other kids. It's like Michael did everything he could to try and keep these these kids that were so incredibly sick feeling at home and feeling normal. You know, So they could sit and watch a movie with other kids at the same time. But the beauty of it was that they had – it's like a regular theater. They had the, this – the soda fountain, they had the popcorn machine, they had this entire setup with every candy you could possibly imagine. The difference was everything was free. So every time I went up there, Joe Marcus, the the manager of the thing, Joe used to take me back to the theater so I could get a couple boxes of Good and Plenty. And um, then we would start our venture around the building, whatever we were doing. But um, yeah, being there was was spectacular. It was really a lot of fun. It was it was sad because of the circumstances in which we were there. I'm a car person, and Michael had these these cars there. He had, I think he had a, a Rolls Royce that at one point belonged to Queen Elizabeth that was in the garage. And again, it was it was yeah, it was spectacular, but nobody saw it, you know. And I was really Unfortunately, this was at a time where cell phones didn't have cameras. And if they did, I didn't have one with a camera. And I did take some pictures on the property, but I never overstepped my bounds. So I wouldn't go into Michael's garage and take pictures of these old Rolls Royces. There were several of them. And it was sad because I'd look at them and nobody was taking care of them. And and again, being a car person, you know, it was very disappointing. But um, yeah, to be able to sort of tool around and go wherever I wanted. He had a video game room that that all, had all these games, these, you know, that that they were all unlocked. The, you know, the kind of thing you would normally go think you'd have to put in a quarter or whatever. Um, everything was there. You just go play till you were blue in the face. It was spectacular. He even had these, these uh, I think there were three. You have to be a dog person. But he had three golden retrievers that used to tool around the pro- property that were just beautiful and so much fun to play with. I mean, I would go outside and I'd, I'd throw a tennis ball and play with the dogs for a while. You know, there's only so much you could do while you were there. But um, I had dinner there a couple times and it's like eating at a restaurant. You know, the, 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 the kitchen people would come out and bring you something to eat. And then when you were done, they'd take your plate, bring you something else. It was a lot of fun. And no check ever came. Um, <laughs> You know, it was it was nice, and I can see why Michael wanted to be there. The sycamore trees and the oak trees and and 2,700 acres was, again, just just unbelievably beautiful. You know, so yeah, it was it was it was something else. Wow, it's a beautiful description. Thank you. Yeah, I I can I can see how anybody could feel really calm there, and and you know I can see why anybody would want to go there. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I enjoyed going there. I went there, I don't know, probably at least 12 times or so. Um, but it was nice. It was nice. Just on Michael's invitation, did he ask you to just to come out and sort of hang out? Or was uh, 
he didn't specifically, but uh, Tom did. You know, there were times when Tom and I had to go out there and he wanted to look at something or or if I had a question about the discovery. The other thing I wanted to tell, uh, if anybody wants to hear, it was kind of neat. I would go into Joe Marcus's office and Joe always had at least half a dozen um, CDs or CD packages that were uh, autographed by Michael. And some of them were personally autographed by Michael to somebody. And, and I had asked Joe a couple times, what are those? And he said, people that Michael want me to send CDs to. And he had signed them. He had autographed them to the people. Um, and that was really neat. Again, Michael would take the time. Somebody would write a letter and saying, can I have this? And he would just literally sit down and take the time and autograph a CD individually to that person. Wow. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, again, I, I really, I had a lot of respect for the guy. I, I didn't spend much time with him actually at all. Um, but you could tell that uh, he was pretty a pretty amazing person. And it wasn't all about Michael. This was not this was not all about Michael. Michael's life was not about Michael. It was about everybody else and other people that he could help and do things for. He was wow. very impressive. Yeah, he was very impressive.